Good afternoon, George. Hey, Michael. How are you? Welcome to the Phil Crafts Marvel Podcast, guys. Hey, uh, we are at SHOT Show for one day. One day only. I'm not feeling shot. Well, we're not even really at SHOT Show. We're Dude, just out here in Vegas. We, we did 5.11. We did a, a seminar, 5 to 6.30 on... Yes, that was yesterday. Yesterday, last night. A common thing that we do is a survival seminar for anybody who's interested, where we... Or like we did an Overland Basic survival seminar with Stop the Bleed. Yep. Uh, had almost 100 people show up. Yeah, it was they, a nice out, out, outcome. They actually cut it off. Like you could only oh, yeah. get tickets if yep. you if you registered. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm actually going to try to do that everywhere I go. Um, I'll be on the road to New Jersey, be on the road to Denver, and here in the near future. Um, yeah, what have you been up to, man? Just working. Stuck stem at the so. office, man. Stem so. You know, I've been feeling kind of weird, like, I don't know if it's the medicine I had or, but just, I haven't been feeling right in my, in my brain, you know, just like really? weird, like feeling like a little down, but they said that you would feel that because it's like the whole process. And then like with all the chemicals getting out of your body throughout all the medicine, mm. I don't know if I'm feeling a little better. It was good to get out of the office for overnight and yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. I don't know. No more. My elbows feel better. My back's getting there. Really? I'm just a little sore from the like from the uh and like when they went into the hip to get the bone marrow out yeah and then the, the uh the lipo on the stomach it's just everything can you notice some difference from the lipo like you're like damn okay no it's, it's just it's just uh sore and bruised oh okay. <laughs> that's it um i had a good time training california highway patrol you know i get all this i get all these comments all the time about people saying things about law enforcement like those guys are the guys that you're gonna have to be uh, taken out because they're, they're they're tyrannical governments. It's like, man, you have no clue. Hey, okay, let me just say this. This is my opinion. They are not taking our guns. There is no way they can take our guns. Like the yeah. logistical nightmare that would be. Yeah. The it would just not turn bad. So let's, hey guys, let's. I mean, I get it. I support two A and all that, but let's take a step back and really think about this. This is it's not going to happen. Yeah, I don't. Well, I just don't like people. Insulting law enforcement officers yeah, because on, man. law enforcement they have a job, yeah, and they're not going to infringe on constitutional rights. They, you have to understand that law enforcement are just people like me and you, and they're just not going to do it. And so, in, in fact, I lived in California under law enforcement, training them locally, and they told me straight up we would never enforce those yeah. laws. Even my dad back in Ohio talks to his sheriff deputy friends, and they're like, "We will never." We're not taking anybody's guns. Like, yeah. like come, come on. Like, yeah. that's all the way in so, so stop with the nonsense. And it's just onesies and twosies, but I just don't like it, man. Uh-huh. Like, don't be a keyboard warrior and type some ignorance like, these are the guys we got to take out. Like, are you are you implying that you're going to kill police officers for your AR-15? Yeah. Like, let's 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 stop like, that. Seriously. Shit. And if you have uh-huh. a problem, like, Google Phil Cross Survival. The address is on the thing. Come on down. I mean – well, oh, what are you saying? Talk. I'm just saying. Like, I'm sick of people. My whole thing tough. is, if you have a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Yeah. Check out George's hook <laughs> while that DJ revolves. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. Just you didn't even pick up on that. I did. That's vanilla ice. Okay, I like that. Uh, <laughs> this this podcast is sponsored, guys. We we've, we've been sponsored for a long time. We're doing really well. We're in the number two spot still. Nice. And it's just amazing the support that we get from you guys. We couldn't have. The podcast being where it's at without you guys' support. Make sure you guys leave feedback on iTunes. Keep telling your buddies, your friends. Um, this podcast is sponsored by great sponsors that take care of us. The first one I'll talk about is KC Highlights. Yeah, that's I call them KC Lights because everybody knows yeah, it's KC Lights, but it's, it's actually KC Highlights. Yeah, great company. They're on their 50. Well, they're about to celebrate their 50th. Why are you yelling at me? I don't know. I'm sorry, guys. 
Uh, they're about to celebrate their 50 years in business. So mm-hmm. we're, we're proud and humbled for them to spawn, get, you know, be a sponsor for us. So I can't wait to build out the rig uh, with KC to- lights, that truck. Like Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to get my uh, the FJ. Like Ooh. I want to make it classic. Well, you got to do some other things at FJ. Man. I know. Come I know, on, man. I'm taking donations. Just clean that thing up on the inside. <laughs> um, Casey Highlights is, uh, you know, they do off-road, off-grid light packages uh, for anybody who's doing anything outdoors. Uh, look, lights are essential, especially in the outdoors and overland mobility. Uh, I'm getting the package where I can obviously see what's in front of me but what's most important is sometimes like the a-pillar lights seeing what's on the sides of you depending on where you're at what terrain you're in i like casey highlights and the fact that uh they gave us a coupon code yes they did philcraft one word right yeah philcraft one word for uh 10 off of your purchase so head on over to caseyhighlights.com and type in the uh, coupon code philcraft Killcliff.com. What can I say about Killcliff except they got me addicted to CBD, uh, yeah. their CBD recovery. Uh, yeah. Drink. By the way, Killcliff, if you're listening, we need some another shipment. I'll hit you up. Don't we worry. need a resupply. This yeah. CBD. Look, I'm a big fan of CBD. I always have been. Uh, CBD, no THC. Not compromised to getting THC in your blood levels by drinking CBD. But they recover, they ignite. Um, all the drinks they have in their suite, they endure. These drinks are set up for performance, yep. and and they're not going to drive you bananas yeah and they're not they're not full of all these uh, chemicals who knows what they should i don't know taurine causes anal leakage i don't know taurine (laughs) up in my drink um make sure you check them out it's phil it's cocliff.com and use the coupon code survival10 for 10 percent off also this this podcast is sponsored by bravo company manufacturing Uh, bcm has always been a sponsor of us we actually are segueing i was just teaching in california and uh, with BCM demonstrating some stuff, but we are segueing into a photo shoot, video shoot that we're oh, doing yeah. in here in the near future. Yeah, I'm excited about it because they do like things like the capability, which is a really cool video and show, showing special operations and law enforcement capability. You guys can check them out at Bravo Company Manufacturing or, or their channels, Bravo Company, on Facebook, Instagram, and so on and so you know. forth. I run two guns, the BCM. At 10.3, uh-huh. and I also run the Triarch. Yes, Talk Triarch. About what can I say? Well, I, I really can't say anything bad about Triarchs. Everything is good. Their builds are solid, rock solid. I mean, how many rounds have we put through our rifles in like thousands? Nothing has happened. It just keeps going and going and going. So uh, you're not going to waste your money with uh, Triarch weapon systems. Just check them out. We have a coupon code for them Fieldcraft for 5% off your build. And it's T-R-I-A-R-C systems.com. I just bought, I didn't tell you this, but it's a waiting for I saw it. I oh, vi- it. oh, yeah, yeah. 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 So we got, we got it. So try, try 11. It's an EDC everyday carry pistol that it's I'm going to try to run. So nice. Well, people are like, oh, you, you can't run that because it's too heavy. It's not heavy. No. The commander not. version. Can we, like, oh. I think people are like, it's, a, it's too heavy of a handgun. No, come on. Yeah. It's a handgun. Our guys. fathers carried 1911s yeah. <laughs> their entire lives, you know, their military careers, law enforcement, whatever it is. And then as their EDC guns, it's not too heavy. Huh. I'm going to run it and then let you guys know how I like it. I like um, the trigger. It's that flat trigger. That flat trigger is oh my amazing. God. I also like the fact that I can run my support hand really high on that gun and not induce some malfunction like I do yeah. with locks. If you got big hands like we got, um, then running a small size or small frame like a Glock 19, uh, you run the risk of causing the malfunctions. This podcast, I got the opportunity to talk to Chris Van Zant from Tier Tactical. He's the COO of Chris. Uh, I'm excited. 
Cheers, Andy. Oh, is COO just like me? Just, no, you, you're VP, son. No, 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 no. I, I, you changed it up? I changed the COO. On your uh, card? Yeah. Well, no, not yet on the card. I got to get it. not official. Okay. Chris Van Zandt <laughs> is a former special operations uh, operator. He's done a lot of things in the global war on terror. Has a myriad of experiences from just, you know, growing up, going in the military, serving his country, and then coming out on the other end. We talk about his transitional issues. We talk about his place in the tactical space with tier tactical, improving, upgrading, and innovating equipment uh, with, with tier. And it's a great story. If you haven't heard the Jason Beck podcast that we did with the CEO, make sure you listen to that one first and come back and, and listen to the COO, former special operations, um, veteran, disabled veteran, uh, amazing guy, uh, great story, and I'm looking forward to the podcast. Chris, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Uh, no problem. Appreciate you having me. So you drove up here from Scottsdale, Arizona, is where you're living at, right? It is, yep. How do you like it out there? I love it. I love it. I uh, When I moved out to Arizona in 2015, I thought, uh, this is going to be a big change. I'm an East Coast guy, uh, you know, used to green and four seasons and um, spent most of my career in North Carolina. So I, I knew it was going to be different and I got out here and I'm an outdoors guy. Uh, the mountains were close. Arizona has a lot more to offer than people realize, you know, two hours North of Phoenix, you're in Flagstaff. You do get four seasons. You got mountains, you got snow. Canyons are amazing. Uh, I, I fell in love with it like less than six months. I loved it out here. How long have you been out here now? Five years. It'll, well, it'll be oh. five years in, uh, in May. Oh, that's awesome. And you guys meaning you and your wife are big hiking or hiker. Uh, tell me about a little bit about that as, uh, as far as like, what, what do you do when you hike? And is that like a big part of your life? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of my life. Um, I was just talking to somebody recently and I'm, I'm not a yogi. I don't understand that, but we were talking about flow states and, and getting yourself in the right mental space, um, to think about things and to process and, when, uh, when I was getting ready to retire from the army, um, in 2015, um, I had been through some, some kind of rough times in my last, uh, four or five years in the military. Um, just personally, um, was kind of down on myself. I needed a, a clean break. I needed a fresh start. Um, and I wanted to do something where I kind of had this, uh, this obstacle, if you will, like something that was the, the line of demarcation between that's what I used to do. And now I'm moving on to the next chapter of my life. And my wife and I talked about it and she said, well, what's something that you've always wanted to do? Like, do you want to take a vacation somewhere? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And I said, you know, I've always wanted to hike the Appalachian trail. And she's like, Whoa. And now mind you, she and I had done quite a few hikes together. When I met her, she had never, slept in a tent. She had never <laughs> pooped in the woods. <laughs> and that's what you do all the time, even for work. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but for me, being outdoors was second nature. I was a I was a climber. I was a skier, you know, spent a lot of time outdoors in the military. I loved it. Um, and she's like, well, how long does the Appalachian Trail take? And I said, it's like six months. Um, and so we did some research. We looked into that a whole lot. Uh, we started looking at some alternatives as well. And then as, as retirement got closer... Um, and I kind of decided on what I was going to do next. Um, I, I started to get a little anxious. I wanted to get to work. I wanted to learn. I wanted to move to that next chapter, but I knew I still needed this. So long story short, we ended up settling, um, on the John Muir trail in California. 
um, after much, much deliberation. Um, and the reason was because John Muir was incredibly challenging. It was about three weeks, um, underfoot, you know, and that's Pacific Northwest. Right? Pacific, yeah. 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 Right in the middle of California. So basically you start in Yosemite national park and you end on the summit of Mount Whitney, um, in Southern California. So you hike through three national parks and a bunch of wilderness areas. You don't cross a road for 226 miles. Wow. Um, and it's a, it's a substantial undertaking, um, both for me and for her. I'd obviously walked a lot of miles over the course of my career. Um, for her, definitely, it was the largest undertaking she'd ever done in her life, and she was super motivated about it, which in turn motivated me. Um, How long did that take you guys? 21 days. 21 days, and was it support, like you came out of it to get support caches, or how'd you guys support yourselves? Yeah, so two resupplies um, along the course of it. Uh, so I think I was at about 62 pounds in my pack. My wife was at about 40 pounds. Wow. Um, that brings two people close together. It really does. And, and, and we weren't married at the time. Um, we had been together for a couple of years. We'd been living together for a year, uh, the year before I retired and people, friends of mine were like, are you nuts? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, like, you're going to go do this big physical thing with a person that's never done it. Like you guys are going to fight like cats and dogs. And I said, well, it's either going to make us stronger or it's not going to work out but I, I'm confident it's going to make us stronger. Um, what I realized in prepping for that, um, and then even more so while we were out, was the mechanics of preparing for a long through hike were so similar to preparing for a military operation that I liked it. Mm. Um, things the that attention I, to detail. The attention to detail, things I hadn't done in years. Um, you know, Logistical planning, where and how are we going to resupply? What are we going to carry? Let's whittle down our load. What can we share between us? Um, what happens if we have bad weather? What happens if we can't get over this pass? Are there alternate routes, route planning? How many miles a day? Where are we going to sleep at night? Um, kind of all those things that you do organically to planning a military operation, we did to do this through hike. And so I got out there. Um, the other part of the equation is I had been a horrible insomniac for about four years um, leading up to that, even when we met. She's like, you don't sleep. She's like, I wake up in the middle of the night and you're wide awake. You know, I'd watch TV till two o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep. Um, I, and that would go for three or four days where I'd get an hour or two a night. And then I would get overcome being tired and I would sleep till 11 o'clock in the morning or whatever. You know, the year before you retire, you're not doing a whole lot so I could get away with it. And um, so I hadn't slept in a long time. <clears throat> so we get out on this hike and I'm two days in and I'm physically beat. We started out of Yosemite. We wanted to average 10 miles a day. We did like nine miles the first day. And both of us looked at each other like, what are we doing? Um, <laughs> it had been a lot of years since I'd walked under that kind of load. And yeah, I knew I had it in me. Um, so kind of the combination of her help helping me and me helping her kind of coach each other along. And she was learning along the way. So there was a lot of conversation. There was a lot of teaching and kind of mentoring wow. um, about moving in the back country. And, you know, you get to a, a high alpine pass and it's covered in snow and there is no trail and you're route finding and you know, her learning navigation, understanding all that. And me being able to like share that with her was, was cathartic. And, uh, so a couple days in I'm exhausted and we'd put our tent up and you know, the sun's not even down yet. And she's like, you want to crawl in the tent after we ate and we'd crawl in the tent and I'm asleep in two seconds. Whoa. Wake up in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, sun's coming up, you get up, you pack up all your stuff, you know, priorities work. 
Yeah. And then you start walking and every day was this new, amazing experience. So as bad as you were hurting, you know, you'd crest that next hill and it would be this amazing scenery. And it's like that every day for 21 days, it's the most incredible country I've ever walked through. And I've been all over the world now. This is all in the Sierras. It's all in the Sierras. And so that went on. So for three weeks, you know, you go to sleep when the sun goes down, you get up when the sun comes up, you walk all day, you appreciate the scenery around you, you talk, you communicate as a couple. Um, I healed, man. Like I finished that trip, came back. I felt the freshest I had felt in a decade. Um, my body was sore. I lost 26 pounds on that hike. Um, you know, silly me, you think I'd think better, but we ate basically the same amount of food every day. Mm -hmm. my, my wife weighs a hundred and whatever pounds. And, you know, I was close to 200 pounds and I lost 26 pounds wow. on that hike. Wow. Um, Did but, it regulate? I feel like when you do something like that, and it's so ancestral, it's so primal, it almost resets your brain and recalibrates the, the kind of waste that we accumulate when we're living in a technologically saturated world and all the other issues that, are, that we run into. It absolutely did. Um, I mean, that hike kind of unlocked the, I don't know, a lot of the places in my brain that I'd stuff things for years. So we laughed, we cried, uh, there was stuff that made me emotional that had nothing to do with her that I was just processing in my mind. Cause you know, maybe you spend an hour talking and then you spend three hours not talking, you're just walking and you know, animals and scenery and, and uh, yeah, the, the, the healing aspect of just having that time to yourself with nothing to worry about other than putting one foot in front of the other mm. was for me was incredible. And it unlocked sort of, a practice that I continue to this day and is something that we share together and we enjoy and it's a part of my life so much so that now in my current job and people that know me well, as I start to, uh, uh, decline, you know, you get a little grumpy and, and maybe your work performance isn't as good or you're kind of snappy with people. And, um, some of those demons from the past start creeping back in for whatever reason. Uh, people that know me well will go, Hey, when, when are you, when are you taking your next hike? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, Oh, I'm offended by that. But then you're like, yeah, maybe I need that. Yeah. yeah. And they, and they support it and I do it. Um, so we average, uh, we probably do three or four, you know, 25 mile or plus we do at least a hundred plus mile or a year. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've averaged that every year since we retired. So yeah, in the last five years, I mean, thousands of miles and all over the world. So Got some good ones coming up this year and looking forward to it. Awesome. So it's like a, uh, you know, it's a reset button ultimately for everything you've done. And it's something that you've been accustomed to in your military career. So it's like reliving this experience all over again. It is. Um, it, um, the sense of accomplishment you get from pushing yourself and abusing yourself uh, and, completing something um is very much akin to stuff you did in the military yeah um i you know as my wife and i joke and we've talked about it a lot of times is we actually kind of like the pain a little bit um it makes everything crisper uh we ran into a guy on a hike one time and it was right on the heels of us having a conversation about kind of liking the pain of a long through hike and we were just chit-chatting with the guys you always do on the trail and the guy said, you know what I love about hiking? And we were like, what's that? And he said, it's one of the few things in the world where you absolutely use all of your senses to appreciate it. Mm. And then he elaborated and he's like, the smell, 
you know, the smells change based on the, the trees around you. He's like the sounds, whether it's a river or a waterfall or the wind blowing by on the mountaintop. He's like the, the visual is incredible. He's like the touch, your feet hitting the ground, the pack on your back. Mm-hmm. And he kind of went through it and we were like, wow, like Magic. he is absolutely right. This is incredible. And that no wonder we like it as much as we do. Yeah. And, and it, it says something about the trauma on, um, you know, experiencing that kind of thing where you suffer in silence, sometimes not silent. And then you you appreciate the journey and the experience. And then after it's done, you're like, good God, I'm addicted to that. I want more of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, um, I believe it or not, and you and I were talking about this earlier, but, you know, from some injuries that I've had and, and issues uh, brain-wise, one of the impacts that I've had is uh, I, I have trouble with an emotional governor. So I can get emotional very easily. Yeah. Um, and that's, I've adapted that to be a more positive response versus some ways that it manifested negatively in the past. But, um, like I'll cry on a hike, man. Like yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll summit a peak or, or, you know, we did a rim to rim, rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, uh, a year ago. And we were, we were done. Like when we got to the top, we were done and I was overcome by emotion. Yeah. And you know, even the, and then, and then an ultra runner runs by you that did it in a third of the time <laughs> and you know, and, you, and, you, and you're humbled and you're like, okay, but, but yeah, I mean, many, many times I'm overcome by emotion and I'm good with it. Like I like that feeling it's, um, that completing a task like that and, and the plan working out the way you laid it out is, is cathartic. It's, it's takes me back to successful operations on the battlefield and and how you feel when that adrenaline rushes over and you hurt and you're dirty and you just want to shower and a cheeseburger. And, Mm. and it's just, it, it's a release of everything. And, and it's amazing. Well, on on that, let's, let's go back to the beginning of your experiences. Cause I, I obviously want to talk about what you're doing with tier tactical today um, but I also want to give context to the listener on where you came from, because you have a long career. You have a long career in special operations uh, and serving in the military. That kind of, you know, brought to you brought you to the literal point that you are today. Whether it's tier tactic or even sitting here doing a podcast and talking about it, you started off in the military. Um, and where where did you begin that journey? Uh, so I started off the military, eighteen years old, fresh out of high school. Um, I had, uh, I had an airborne contract, um, went to base training Fort Benning to be a, a an infantryman. I thought I was going to be an 11 Bravo. I thought I had an 11 B airborne contract. Um, and I was told by my recruiter that in airborne school, I could volunteer to attend Ranger indoctrination program. Of RIP. <laughs> and, uh, he was actually a good dude. The recruiter is a funny story, but, but anyway, so I, I, um, went through base training. We moved on to AIT and they told me I was an 11 Charlie and I was going to go through mortar training. Well, you're a basic trainee. You don't know any better. And I'm like, man, maybe that recruiter did lie to me. (laughs) But, um, so I didn't ask any questions at the time. So I finish, you know, AIT or whatever. And I'm a, I'm a mortar guy and kind of upset about it. Um, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to be an 11 Bravo and, and, uh, we're getting ready to graduate. And I, walked up to my first sergeant, the company first sergeant at the time. And I said, can, you know, can I talk to you for a second? He said, yeah. And I said, you know, told him the story. I was, I thought I was 11 Bravo. I was supposed to have a airborne contract. He said, well, why didn't you say anything before you started AIT? Oh my gosh. And not, not in a mean way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He was actually a nice guy. 
Riggs was his last name. But, but you had an option. But I had an option. <laughs> and, and he's like, uh, well, let's go look. So, you know, we go in the office and they, whatever they dug out, um, he's like, no, it's your 11 x-ray. Like, That's you, what I was. You, oh. don't, you don't even have airborne school on there. And I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. I go, and I told him the whole story about how, you know, I was delayed entry and this happened. And then I went, when I went to MEPS, they switched my contract. And I go, I know for a fact it was on my contract because I read it and I signed it. And and so he made some phone calls literally right then and there. Oh, wow. And he said, no worries. He goes, I can't fix the 11 Charlie, 11 Bravo thing. He's like, you completed AIT. You're an 11 Charlie. He's like, but I can send you to airborne school with the rest of the people that that have airborne Whoa. slots. Airborne. So, so that was cool. away. Yeah. So I went to airborne school, graduated airborne school, went to RIP. Uh, graduated RIP, got assigned third range of battalion. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is nineties. Yeah, it's ninety five. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. When Charlie Company three seven five was assigned to weapons platoon, that was when mortars were still all down to company level. Uh, so mortars and AT, um, and that was wild, man. Like it was like a, uh, it was like a college dorm, but to the. Ten thousandth power. Yeah, I remember those <laughs> barracks in three seven five. I remember those barracks. Yeah, so uh, I had a great um, kind of first six, seven, eight months. Did a bunch of stuff. I, you know, I was eyes wide, loving it, loving everything I was doing, jumping and airfield seizures and even patrolling. We still did back then, and enjoyed being in weapons platoon. Didn't bother me at all being eleven Charlie. You know, carrying a base plate and bipod and. 120 pound ruck and i was a little tiny guy then i was i was 135 pounds when i went to basic training wow i actually gained weight because it made me eat extra um and so i came out at 155 pounds but nice. i was still a little skinny guy yeah. and uh about uh nine or ten months in um i made my first major mistake of my career and i, I joke now looking back i i i have made enough mistakes in my life to figure out how to be successful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so I'm very candid about it. Um, but I, I did, I was, I was out with a friend and he had gotten a, a sort of dear John letter from his girl back home. And, you know, we'd been in the training pipeline forever and then, you know, got to regiment and you roll right into training and we were both in three, seven, five together, different companies. And so he wanted to go out and, um, you know, so we went out and he was drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And I had had a few beers and, um, so I was going to drive his truck home and, uh, on the way home, it had just rained and we were coming up to a, to an intersection and the lady in front of me stopped on a yellow light and he had this great big four by, he was from Texas. So he had this giant truck <laughs> and, uh, I hit the brakes and we slid and just barely kissed the back of her car and a cop was passing and saw the accident happen. So he turned around and pulled in and gets inside of the car and he's talking to me and I was like, yeah, it's my buddy's truck, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you've been drinking tonight? And I'm like paused just long enough for the cop to go, don't lie to me because your buddy's throwing up in the bushes. And I I look over and and sure enough, Ben's Ben's throwing up in the bushes, whether it was from, I don't know, being afraid or or being intoxicated. But um, then I was underage and, you know, it was stupid. Um, And I got a DUI. Um, So at the time regimental policy was if you had alcohol related incident, you had to leave the regiment. So I was informed that, you know, I was going to get a letter of reprimand and, you know, I thought my career was over and then I was how, how are you feeling then? I mean, how is that? Probably the lowest I've ever felt at that point in my yeah. life. Um, you know, I had a good childhood divorced parents, but, um, they both got remarried. I had, I ended up with two good families out of it. So, yeah. uh, you know, a little bit of everything, middle-class family, um, 
but it hadn't really been through anything kind of that traumatic. Um, and all I wanted to do was, was be a special operations guy was to be an army ranger first and move on to be an SF guy. And, and, uh, yeah, so they told me that I was going to have to leave the regiment worldwide assignment, you know, like oh. all the things you hear when you're in rip and yeah. I was scared to death and, and what am I going to do? And, and, uh, I ended up sticking around for like six more months. Like I did a, we did a deployment to Germany, did a 40 mile infill, that whole thing. And, uh, great, some great, I had some great experiences after that, which yeah. took the edge off of it a little bit. There was one point where I thought maybe I'm not going to leave. Ooh. Um, but it, the same weekend that I got my DUI, my section sergeant got a DUI. So there were two of us in weapons platoon, my boss and me that oh. got DUIs the same weekend. So we were leaving one way or another. Um, so eventually they did, and they sent me to uh, 3rd Infantry Division um, on Kelly Hill there at Fort Fort Benning. And uh, so I went from, you know, Airborne Ranger Infantry to a mechanized infantry battalion. Um, and it, you want to talk about a different experience. Culture shock, for sure. Culture shock. Yeah. Um, drastically different. The people were different. The soldiers were different. The leaders were different. Uh, it was... What were some of those differences? Just curious, uh, from your perspective back then. Uh, the, in regiment, everything was training focused. So you trained hard, you partied hard, you know, we were full of piss and vinegar and, you know, you were shooting, you were doing something related to your job all day. And then at night we acted like the kids that we were. Yeah. And, and, you know, you go to bed at 2am, you get up at five o'clock in the morning, attention, right face, double time March. And yeah. that's what I was used to. And that's what I wanted, frankly, when I joined the military was I wanted that. I wanted to be pushed. I wanted that structure. I knew I needed it. Um, I was a partier and a drinker and way too young. Um, and I and I intentionally went in the military because I thought I needed that. Mm-hmm. And I got to to third infantry division and you know, there were days that would go by where we didn't do anything and guys were talking about correspondence courses and <laughs> You know, it was waiting on the word. That's all wait, you did. Waiting on the word. Maintenance Mondays down in the motor pool, checking oil and, you know, busting track and pulling maintenance on the gun systems. And yeah, it was just a totally different animal. Um, when I first got there, I was scared to death again. I thought everybody was going to look down on me because I had gotten a DUI. I had this letter of reprimand. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. I just knew it was bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, my platoon sergeant was a, was a real senior E8 in a mechanized infantry battalion. They were master sergeants were the mortar platoon sergeant in the battalion. I'd never even seen an E8. I'd seen a first sergeant, but I'd never seen a, a master sergeant. So we had a master sergeant, two E7s, you know, it was a real rank heavy platoon. And he brought me to his office the first day I was there. And he said, uh, <laughs> he said, uh, private Van Zant, uh, you know, welcome to the platoon. And he's kind of giving me my little in brief. And he's like, I want you to know that, you know, you got a DUI, you made a mistake. He's like, so what? So to, every other teenage kid out there. He's like, you just made yours when you were at a place that made you leave because you did it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm not going to hold it against you. It's, you know, considered a fresh start. <clears throat> and he was a big black guy. That's the reason I'm saying that. Um, which didn't bother me. Delaware was a pretty diverse state. So, yeah. uh, whatever. So he's, he's talking to me and right after he gets done welcoming me and saying that, he pauses and he says, third ranger battalion, huh? I said, yeah. He said, uh, it's not a lot of black fellas in the regiment, huh? <laughs> and I said, excuse me, Sergeant. <laughs> and he said, 
He said, there's not a lot of black guys in the range regiment. And I said, no, sergeant, there's not. And he goes, you were there about a year, a little over. He's like, uh, how many black fellows you think are in third ranger battalion? And I said, four. <laughs> and he like sat back in his seat and he went, four? How do you know there's four? I go, well, there's only four, sergeant. It wasn't that hard to like <laughs> count in the chow hall. And he, he doesn't laugh, straight face, you know, seriously. He's a giant man, giant, like NFL lineman size man. So I'm sitting in front of him across from his desk. And he's like, huh. And he leans forward on his desk, like to close the distance between the two of us. And he stares me dead in the eye and he goes, why do you think that is? And I paused for a second and my brain went, I can be honest with him and hope he appreciates it. Or I can lie (laughs) and he's going to know I'm a liar. (laughs) So I said, I think it's because they can't pass the swim test, Sergeant. (laughs) I swear. And he busts out laughing. (laughs) And he says, you're goddamn right, Van Zandt. I can't swim a lick. (laughs) That's so freaking awesome. And so we proceed to laugh. And he's like, he's like, you're all right. You know, he's like, I appreciate you being, being honest like that. He's like, and and then, you know, later on we, we laughed about it and he's like, yeah, he's like, it's, it's, it's cultural thing. Yeah, that historically African Americans in this country, you know, a lot of them grow up in the inner city or whatnot. And there's not pools. There's not pools. No. They they just they don't grow up swimming like white kids do. Frankly, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a funny moment. I've told that story for years. And- I I miss that about the army because I remember uh, you know I was in the infantry in the '90s. I miss the not being politically correct because it like in the incidents like that because I have a hundred of those stories. Um. And it brought people closer together. Absolutely. It didn't divide them yeah. because we were just being honest with each other. Yep. And now it's like you, you're so afraid to say something, at least kids now or that are in the military, and it's like, how can we build this bond between us? There's racism and, and classism and all the other isms that exist in every organization in the world. But I swear, I firmly believe the United States military is one of the best examples of how to do it right. Yeah, yeah. They they strip you down, they build you up, they make you part of a cohesive team. And, um, you know, another one that I always tell related to that is the, the kid, a guy I went to basic training with. He was a 38-year-old basic trainee. His name was Lee Thompson. Lee, if you're out there. Um, great dude. He was from Lake Okeechobee, Florida, hmm. which is in the middle of nowhere. That's Central a shit Florida. Hole. yeah. And Lee actually said to me, I had never seen a black guy until I came to base training. Jeez. So regardless of how he grew up culturally. Yeah, the diversity you have. Yeah, it, it, the military is is by far the best at bringing people together and stripping all that stuff off and making you care about your brother on your left and your right, regardless of who they are, where they came from. So That's awesome. So you, so you get assigned a third infantry yeah. uh, division and then you're navigating through your way th- through your uh, career. Yep, so I'm I'm pretty beat down um but I, you know the reception was fine there. Um I realized very quickly that uh I had gotten an a, a lot of training in the time that I spent in regiment albeit brief. Um I had done a lot of things in that year and however many months it was and um, so it was very easy to excel in the environment that I found myself in now. Um, and I didn't like the negative sides of 
that unit. I didn't like that guys didn't want to train. I didn't like that they would hide in their rooms, you know, so they didn't get pulled for a detail. Um, I was that kid that would volunteer. I'll go do it because I didn't want to sit around. Mm -hmm. Um, and that resonated with my leadership at the time. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I pinned on spec four, like a couple months later or whatever. Um, so that was a positive kind of turned me over a little bit in that, well, maybe my career's not over. This is okay. You know, these guys seem to respond well to the things that I'm doing. I could run. I, I was fortunate. My parents were both good athletes and I could just run. What's your two mile time in a run? Then? Yeah. Uh, like 11 oh, or four or something. Well, 11.54 was the max. Was the max, yeah. I could never get that, man. Yeah. I was just heavy drop. I don't think I ever got below 11 minutes, but I was, I was pretty fast then. Wow. And I could do it for a long time too. Yeah. But, but yeah, I was good at that stuff. And, and so I, I pinned on spec four and, um, I just happened to be standing around one day when the, like the two E sevens and the E eight were complaining about stuff that went on in the platoon. And I said, I can fix that sergeant. And he was like, what? You're not in this conversation. Get out of here, Van Zant. And, and the platoon sergeant, same guy, Donald Blackman was his name. Um, Master Sergeant Blackman said, hey, hold on a second. What do you mean you can fix it? And I said, uh, I'll fix it. And he said, how are you going to fix it? I said, put corporal stripes on me, I'll fix it. And he said, okay. 4187 the next day made me a corporal. He said, now you're an NCO, go fix it. And I was a ruthless nice. <laughs> guy. I, yeah. I, You know, when you're that young, I didn't understand what real leadership looked like. Yeah. Um, so the only thing that I had to apply was as long as I only asked them to do things that I either do with them or I can do myself, um, I'm good. So uh, there was a lot of PT. Um, there was a lot of uh, work. Um, yeah. I would not let the guys in my charge sit around and do nothing. We were always training on something. So I constantly was trying to make myself smarter. Um and it kind of got better from there. I actually enjoyed it. We did a deployment not long after that. I pinned on Corp Stripes, and we deployed to uh, to Kuwait for Operation Desert Thunder, which was like when the we were patrolling the skies above Iraq post-first Gulf War. Yeah. Um, and we were positioning troops, doing exercises in the desert of Kuwait just as a show of force mm -hmm. kind of constantly. Um, but it was awesome, man. We were out there for six months living in the desert, miserable at the time. Looking back on it, I think how great it was. We did live fires all the time out there, like stuff that you didn't get to do on Fort Benning. Mm -hmm. We were doing out in the desert all the time, and I got better. I liked it. Came back. I went to the mortar leadership course, um, learned the whole fire direction control piece of, of indirect fire. Actually enjoyed it. Uh, missed the regiment. Still thought my career was done and still thought, you know, I'm probably going to get out after four years um, because I, I made this mistake. And, you know, my, my hopes of being a special forces guy were shattered. <clears throat> so this weighed on you because you're like, did you have an option to go back to the regiment when that was removed from your record? Or? No. I mean, that was never brought up. I, I, I don't know if that was even a possibility or not, but that wasn't said. Mm -hmm. um, so I always assumed that I couldn't go back. Um, so, you know, I was coming up on, I guess, three years in the army or whatever, where you're in your reenlistment window. Yeah. So and your window opens up a year prior to you getting out of the military. Right. Right. Or did that. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. But, um, and, uh, I basically told chain of command that I was going to ETS. So I was going to get out <clears throat> and they asked me to go see the battalion commander. And again, we had done a bunch of stuff. I had 
made a little bit of a name for myself in the battalion as, as a go-getter, as a guy that was doing good things. And, and the platoon, frankly, like we did a good job. We had, we did have some decent NCOs and some of the bad seeds kind of got weeded out in that year. And the deployment kind of helped that. So guys were a little more focused when we came back. And so I got on to see the battalion commander and Colonel Lee was his name. And, you know, I told him the story and told him what happened. And I, I didn't even know what a letter of reprimand was, but I was like, I have this letter of reprimand and it's in my files. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to get promoted slower than everybody. And, you know, he basically said, well, you know, you're an NCO now, you're corporal now. I hadn't slowed you down yet. And I was like, yeah, but what about like E5, E6, E7? And so we had this roundabout conversation. He's like, you know, you're you're a good soldier. He's like, you've been a good leader. He's like, you, you took that lick and you stepped up um, and you bettered yourself and you made the people around you better. I don't want to lose you. What do I got to do to keep you in the Army? And I said, well, can you make that letter of reprimand go away so, like, it doesn't impact me and I can still kind of continue to excel and, and go on to the next thing? And he said, yeah, I can do that. Um, and I said, well, and, and I'm not staying here. No offense, sir. And he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, I, I understand. He's like, it's tough. You know, you're in Ranger Regiment and Airborne Unit. And so what do you want to do? I said, well, I at least want to go back to an Airborne Unit. So I'd like to go up to the 82nd Airborne Division. So true to his word, it, you know, I guess he did move that letter of reprimand to my restricted fish. We were what laughing he, earlier. What does that even mean? Whatever, I don't know. <laughs> There's an S1 dude somewhere that knows what that means, but I believed whatever he said, that it yeah. wasn't going to impact me. And and I re-enlisted to go up to 82nd and um, went up to 82nd, was assigned to 2nd 325. I was almost, we had an outgoing mortar section sergeant, so I was immediately in charge of the mortar section in the line company. Um, and I liked it. Um I could do whatever I wanted. So we were out in area J J there on the other side of where the old division barracks were and training all the time. I could rock all the time. I could do PT all the time. We could do PT in the afternoon sometimes if we wanted to. So I liked the flexibility that I liked that the 82nd was very training focused, at least at the time, you know, this is all pre-war stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So now I'm in 82nd. Um, I spent about a year, not quite as a mortar section sergeant. And over that course of that year, I used to befriend the new LTs that would come in. Um, I was in the, the platoon CP, as they call it. So all the platoon sergeants and platoon leaders had one office that they shared together in the line company. And because I was a mortar section sergeant, I was basically a platoon sergeant and a platoon leader as an E5. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, an, I went to the board or whatever. I was an E5 promotable, but, but points to get promoted to E6 at the time were seven ninety nine and um, so I had befriended a lieutenant, um, by the name of Paul Karen and, uh, Paul was a, a West pointer, which most of them I didn't like when they showed up. I felt like they came in and tried to take charge and they didn't know Jack, um, compared to the NCOs around them. And, but he was a good one. He was a boy scout through and through. Um, and, and we kind of got to be friends and so Paul did his time and I was doing the mortar section starting thing and, you know, whatever he, he, uh, Ended up getting a second platoon. They moved him to, to HHC, and he took the scout platoon over. And we were talking one day, and he was like, hey, why don't you move to the scout platoon and take a team? And I said, well, how do I do that? It's like, I'm 11 Charlie. It's 11 Bravo Billet. Like, they're not going to let me move to the scout platoon. He goes, they will if, if I ask. He's like, I'm scout platoon leader. He's like, you know, you're the best fire team leader. You're better, you're better at tactics and basic 7-8 stuff than, than – any of the line squads he's like besides all you gotta do is 4187 signed by the commander and they'll switch over to 11 bravo i go i don't do anything else it's just a piece of paper he said yeah 
And I go, well, how do I do that? He's like, well, let's go see the reenlistment office guy. So we went over there, filled out 4187, brought it back, commander signed it. The next day I was promoted E6 because <laughs> 11 Bravo points were like, that easy. We're like 401 <laughs> or something crazy. So That's the next, so awesome. So the next day I was promoted E6 and I moved the scout team to a scout team. Um, that was awesome. That, that, those were good dudes. That was a little more my speed. Um, I was a, I was an independent guy as a free thinker, uh, a rule bender yeah, <laughs> to yeah. put it nicely. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't like being put in a box and, and scouts were a little better fit. Um, so had a good time there. Paul eventually, uh, moved on. Um, he actually went to the regiment, I think, and, and took a platoon in Ranger Regiment, which was yeah. his path. And I think he jumped into Rhino DZ was the, or one of the first three, seven, five jumps in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yep. So while Paul was still there, I, um, again, we were friends and had a lot of conversations and, uh, he was like, what are you, what are you going to do? Like, what's next for you? And I said, well, you know, I want to, I want to go be Green Beret. I want to go to SFAS. And Paul said, uh, well, what's your, what's your ultimate goal? Was that your ultimate goal? I said, no. I was like, man, my, you know, I learned a lot in the last few years was in the military, start out in regiment. And there were times when, when guys from the SMU at Bragg would, would come down and do things with us. So you'd see them and they were these mythical creatures, man. They were, they were like <laughs> long hair, beards. Yeah. And, and now I'm at, I'm at Bragg and we'd be going out to do some training and, um, you know, you're around the corner there by old McKellar's road and there'd be some dude with long hair and a beard on a dirt bike ripping down the side of the road. And I'm like, man, <laughs> you know, the movies of my childhood were <laughs> Chuck Norris and the Delta Force movie with Lee yeah. Marvin and, and the Navy SEAL movie, strangely. Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, I, I, that's, that's, that's why I told him, I was like, you know, eventually I'd like to end up there. And he said, well, why don't, why don't you apply to go to unit selection? And I said, well, they're not going to take somebody my age, man. That's ridiculous. And he's like, well, how do you know? And I'm like, well, I, I don't. He's like, well, if, if you meet the minimum requirements, and I think the age requirement at the time was 22 and four years of service yeah. and what, whatever it was. So I met him, and he was like, so why, why don't you try? And I was, you know, him and Han. And he was like, worst that happens is you don't make it. It's just selection. It doesn't mean anything. He's like, so you try out, you don't make it. If you don't make it, well, then put in your packet and go to SPS. So... You know, I don't know why this lieutenant knows all this stuff or is telling me this. And I was naive. I didn't think to ask. You know, I was probably very focused on myself and my own head. So yeah. I wasn't thinking about a lot. So, like, whatever I, I, I do, I go take the PT test or, you know, meet the recruiter, go to the brief, uh, take the PT test, pass the PT test, and, you know, do all the other shit you got to do, psych eval and all that, and actually get asked to attend selection. And so I have a selection date and, you know, I got a few more weeks of training and I loved it in scalp tune because I could go, I could do PT twice a day. Like I was in really good shape. I was confident physically that I was going to be okay. I was great at land nav. Like the things that I thought I knew about what I was getting into, I thought I was prepared for. I was just young. No combat experience. That was another thing. I had this chip on my shoulder. Like I hadn't been to war and I felt <laughs> like, I felt like they only took guys that had been to war again. Yeah, they, yeah. Were, they were mythical beings to me. <laughs> and, uh, so Paul and I were out setting up some training for the platoon and, and, um, we were coming back out of, out of, uh, Northern training area there. And Paul said, uh, Hey, you mind if we go see my dad? And I said, no, sure. And, and to my knowledge, his dad, he always said his dad was a combat engineer. And so I'm thinking we're going to drive to the combat engineering brigade there over on main post. And so we're coming in from area J and we're riding down the road and you know, you're passing the, the 
unit compound there and we turn on to McKellar's and that was before all that was closed and he turns into the gate to the compound and I said, Paul, what are you doing? This is a, this is a Delta compound, man. Like I thought you said we were going to see your dad. He goes, we are. And I go, your dad works in the Delta compound? He said, well, yeah, he's the UNSR major. <laughs> I lost it. Like what? It's oh. like, dude, I got a class. Day. He's like, no, nah, it won't be bad. He's like, just come on, just come on. It doesn't impact it, whatever. So, so I'm nervous as all get out. Yeah. Right. So, so we go in, we walk through the front door, which no one ever goes through the front door there, the yeah. building, and turn right or left into Doug's office. And uh, his his dad was Doug Karen. I didn't know that, and uh, he was a Unisar major at the time. And so we walk in, and he, you know, he and his dad are engaging about one thing or another. And I'm just sort of standing there, like in awe, like one, I'm in this place that. I didn't know I would ever get to, and two, I'm gonna have to speak to this <laughs> the, the dude's in charge of it, the, the superhero that's in charge of superheroes yeah. in my mind, and uh, and all he says to me is is so Chris, how you doing? I was like, I'm good, Sergeant Major. You know, with little words as possible, and he's like, so you know, Paul tells me you've got a uh, you've got a selection date. I said, yes, Sergeant Major. You know, coming up here in the fall, and he looks at me and he just says, good luck. Like like that too, like not not a positive one, <laughs> a little pessimistic <laughs> glance. Like, yeah, really, really, and uh, and so I didn't, you know, I don't know how to take that, but I just wanted to get out of there, so yeah. we left, and um, so I ended up going to selection that fall. Uh, I made it almost all the way through, um, and then uh, day before the forty miler, I got pulled for time. Um, fair to me, time standard is briefed, and and uh, uh, but they asked me. To, to come back if I wanted, which I took as a positive. And um, so I went back to the 82nd and waited a full year and then went back again next fall. All right. So they give you another shot to come back a year, one year later, you had to wait one year later. Yep. And, uh, I didn't have to wait a year. I could have gone back that spring. Yeah. Um, I, you know, felt like, um, I crushed it. Like I felt like I was fast and they told me I wasn't fast enough. So mentally I was like, well, I think my chances are better if I come back in the same season. Yeah. So the terrain looks the same. So if, if by happenstance I cross the same pieces of land that I crossed the first time, if anything, that's going to help me, right? I'm going to be even more confident the second time around, same season. Hopefully the weather is similar um, and we don't get a lot of snow, whatever. So I forego the spring. Um, I trained my ass off that year about three months before I went back to selection I was playing basketball and sprained my ankle like bad, like high ankle sprain. Yeah. Thought I broke it. And I was like, this can't be happening. Like, I know I got this. Um, So I learned uh, self taught and you're like looking stuff and reading stuff and how to properly tape an ankle. And I taped the crap out of my ankle so I could train. And then I brought all that stuff with me when I went back to selection, and I taped that ankle every single morning. Wow! So you're when you showed up, you were already deficient in something. I was. Um, so what I told myself was, I am really good at land navigation. Like I am, for whatever reason. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, I just got it. Yeah. Um, I was really comfortable looking at a contour map and then looking at terrain and being able to move out. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm hoping my navigation skills and making good choices are going to make up for the fact that I'm probably going to be slower than I was the first time. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, so went through, um, and what year is this when you get through, uh, 2001. Wow. So I was a nine 11 class. Wow. So you, when you were in selection, was it, was it nine 11 or, uh, no, nine 11 happened. And then I went to selection. Wow. So the game, this is a game changer. Yeah. I was out in the field the day nine 11 happened, um, with the scout platoon and mm-hmm. then, yeah. And then went to selection a couple, couple weeks later three weeks later I guess. what was the what was the atmosphere like in that class knowing that everybody there that was trying out was potentially going to go straight into war uh i mean i i don't know that i've ever been to an army school that's that business yeah in the first place um it is the most professional run course that i ever attended um and i think candidates are all there to be successful. I think they've probably been successful in their career. They wouldn't even attempt it. Um, most of the guys there are SF guys already, Green Berets coming from one of the groups. So they're guys coming out of regiment. There's very few regular army dudes. Um, so for me, I kind of kept it myself. Um, I knew a couple of guys that were there with me the first time. Um, a couple of them were notable, you know, Walt Shoemate's kid, Alan Shoemate, and I went to selection both times together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, some of them I just recognized. Um, but other than that, I kind of kept to myself, and I think everybody sort of did. It was a bit of a – it was a much more somber yeah. selection than the first time I went. Yeah. I felt like it was a little more buddy-buddy the first time, everybody getting to know each other. The second time, I feel like people didn't want to do that at all. It was just, what's next? Yeah, it's about business. Yep. So you get through and then, you know, you get assigned to an SMU, I'm assuming. You go through everything, all the training and stuff. What was that experience for you like coming from the regular army and then being propelled? Because it's a rapid timeline. I mean, let's be honest, like the, the time in which you're selected to catapulted to the tip of the spear is not very long in no, time. No, uh, it was incredible. I mean, I was a kid in a candy store in, in school. Um, I liked everything we did every day, even even the stuff that sucked. I thought I was so sort of mentally overwhelmed by the fact that I was there, Mm -hmm. um, that, but, but not in a negative way. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, I just took it all in like a sponge. Um, I was fortunate to have really good instructors. Um, most of my instructors coming through school were, were, you know, guys from, from Somalia in 93, you know, they were, they were Mogadishu guys, um, either when they were in 75th Ranger Regiment or they were unit guys at the time. And these were the guys that were, that were teaching me as I was going through the course. So, um, that was cool. And we were very aware of that, um, that the stuff that you were getting were from guys that had actually been in a lot of gunfights, um, at the highest level. Um, so yeah, for me, it, it was so motivating. Like I literally, I don't think I, I think it was the best I ever felt in my life, you know, hoping and praying that you get through it, that you're, that you're just barely good enough because you know, the guys on your left and right, I was so young, I was 23 years old. And you know, the other dudes in the course with me were like either close to 30 or over 30, you know, some of them were very, very senior or seasoned SF guys. Um, you know, I went through the course with, you know, Tom Spooner and, guys like that. And, and I looked up to him and Tom and I were on the same team in school. And, uh, you know, my instructors were, I think you had 
you had Tom on the show, but Tom Satterley was one of my yeah. OGC instructors. Kyle Lamb was one of my OGC instructors. And Pat McNamara, guys that, yeah, that in my mind had had been there, done that, and mm-hmm. and had a right to be telling me exactly how to do it. So, and you get a little different perspective out of every guy, um, and I like that. So I think everybody has a nemesis in school that. Um, I had a guy we called the AC-130 Spectre because he used to just hover during CQB and shoot 120 <laughs> rounds at me. It didn't matter what I did. <laughs> and then you'd leave and you'd move over to the other side and, and you'd have a different guy and he would tell you, yeah, man, that was that was pretty good. And yeah. That's all you needed. You know, all you wanted to hear was <laughs> it was pretty good. Something positive. I didn't need I didn't need a pat on the back. I just needed yeah. a, that was okay. Glimmer of light. Yeah, right, right, right. So, I, yeah, for me, I was I – was, um, <clears throat> uh, just sort of in shock the whole time. Was there a feeling, uh, you know, whether those are the climate or the environment, was there a feeling like, you know, hey, the, the GWAT's kicking off Afghanistan, we're invading Afghanistan. I think October 19th, we, 3rd Ranger Battalion, jumped in with uh, in, uh, supporting a, an SMU for an operation, and then things are picking up. So there's got to be buzz about what's going on. There was. Um, yeah, I mean, we knew the unit was engaged. Um, every scenario that we had was very real. Um, I think, and I, I don't have a frame of reference. Like I don't have another course to compare it to, but there are things that occurred while I was going through the course that I thought there is no other place on the world that is like this. And I'll give you an example. The, we were doing CQB, um, and a guy was out front the shoot house and he was, prepping a charge. He was a breacher for that particular iteration. And he had a, you know, the old Navy West device, you know, mm-hmm. dual fire. Yep. Um, and he, for whatever reason, thinking about other things, um, you know, you test fire the West device before you go do the hit or whatever you're going through your, your pre-combat checks and whatever. And he actually screwed the no now. So he screwed the cap and no now into the West device and then pulled the safety and test fired it. Mm. and it blew uh, three quarters of most of his fingers off on the one hand. And we thought it was a shotgun. We thought somebody had an AD with like a hat and round or something on Mm -hmm. a shotgun, you know, just moved funny and pulled the trigger Um, and then realized what it was. And, you know, he's doing the hot potato with his hand. And the instructor at the time turned, you know, yelled at the medic that was on site with us. Medic came over wrapped him up. They loaded him in the Humvee to take him up to the aid station or the, or the hospital or wherever he was going. And as soon as that truck turned and drove away, the instructor turned around and said, next team up with a straight face. And that to me was such a significant moment. It mm-hmm. was okay. Some stuff happened. It was a mistake, but we're here for one reason, one reason only, and it's to get you guys prepared to go to war. And that's how I felt in that moment and sucked for the guy that it happened to, but it was also a really instrumental moment for me. And I'm sure most of the guys that were in the class at that time. Yeah. Cause it's like, there is no pause for the wary. We're, we're going, we're doing this. Yeah. So then right towards the tail end, maybe, or maybe it was early. Um, so somewhere in there, um, president Bush came to Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm in school, we're on the range shooting, and they tell us that the president is coming to range 19, and he's going to speak to the unit. And so we're on the range doing shooting drills all day. Training didn't stop. 
at the end of the day, we came back to the parking lot right up by the main buildings and they had a platform built and we all piled into the parking lot and Bush spoke to everybody there on the compound. You know, they did Capex for him or whatever. We, yeah. we weren't involved in that, but our day went on as normal. At the end of the day, when he spoke to everybody, we got to be there. And I remember thinking, man, like the president of the United States came here to speak to just this little tiny group of people. And he gave his speech and I couldn't tell you what he said. I think yeah. you know, it was one of those things where, again, it was a long time ago and I was, I was probably like, wow, mm. um, you know, wearing a sidearm, you know, standing there staring at the president of the United States, wow. like that other realization of this is weird. Yeah. Um, and then he got, he finished his speech and he walked down off the platform and he must've stayed for like an hour and a half and literally stayed until anyone that wanted to come up and shake his hand and, and, and exchange words with him could. Um, and we all got to do that shake his hand. And wow. And that was another one that was like, wow, man, like this must be for real. Like I'm, I am going to find myself in combat very soon. And the president of the United States thought enough to come here. Yeah. Um, and we asked around and, you know, had this happened before? And, you know, gosh, we're like, no, like this, this <laughs> it's is the a first new president. president. Yeah, it was a yeah. new one. And, and, and so that was, that was another one that did just sort of added another level of, of, uh, appreciation for the significance of what we were doing. How long was it before you crossed the hall that you, they, I mean, you were going to war? And what what was that experience like? Uh, <laughs> pretty funny. Um, yeah, so showed up. Uh, I ended up um, assigned to Saber Squadron and Sea Squadron, mm -hmm. um, and they were deployed at the time. They were actually in Afghanistan. They had just gone over to Afghanistan, and so uh, an old um, Sea Squadron guy, a guy by the name of Dan Murrow. Um, who was at Desert One as an Army Ranger. Dan was an operator um, in 1980. He became a unit operator, and he was still there, and he was still technically operational. He was like an op sergeant, so mm -hmm. he stayed back specifically to receive us and do some of those things. And so there's four of us across the hall to Sea Squadron, and you know the very first day he's showing us around, and we're sitting down like out front in our little like – I don't know, day room or whatever you want to call it. And uh, he's like, hey, I just want to take a few minutes. He's like, you know, you guys just finished this thing. He talked about the milestone. He's like, we're excited to have you. You know, you guys, I'm sure you're all going to be a great fit. He's like, I'd like to, you know, tell you a little bit about myself. And then I'd like you guys to just share a little about you with me. So I kind of know who you are. Um, and then we got to get you ready to go. And so he proceeds to tell us who he is. And I was the first person to talk. And so he turns to me. And, and again, this is me looking back now. I was probably a cocky <laughs> shit at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, man, I was so overwhelmed like, yeah. by all of that. And Dan gets to me and he's like, go ahead. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm Chris Van's aunt. And you were an operator when I was three. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. And, and he laughed, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he was, Dan was an awesome dude. And uh, anyway, so... Yeah, so we basically got issued kit, um, went through like some shakeout stuff. Um, Dan kind of helped with getting us prepped with what we needed to bring, and these are your deployment bags. And that was back when we still kind of had somewhat of an SOP for what was in what bag and team rooms and things like that. And we got on a plane. Didn't even go to – I didn't go to Halo school. 
um, which I hadn't been yet. And I, we skipped it and went after our first deployment. So because the priorities of war, because priorities of war. Um, so showed up in Afghanistan and met my team in the tent in Bagram, um, as a 23 year old kid. What was their reaction of you? Were they just like, Oh shit. It's like, like, who's this dude? Who's you know, this kid? You, it's, it's mixed. I mean, I was, I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and there's an element of hazing that goes on in any organization. Um, so there's guys that take to you and then there's guys that treat you like the, the FNG. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, you know, my team, I think overall, my team sergeant was a man of few words. Um, but my team was very welcoming of me. Uh, other guys in the troop, not so much. It took a while. <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> the, uh, one, one of the other team leaders said, Hey, so-and-so left. Um, and we figured you wouldn't have a sleeping pad for your cot. So we, we gave you his air mattress and I was like, Oh, thanks man. I really appreciate that. And he goes, yeah, the problem is there's no pump with that one. So you have to blow it up with your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, Oh shit. Like, oh shit. And, and, it, and it leaked. Right. So, <laughs> so every morning I would wake up on the cot and then every evening I would blow it back up. <laughs> And then by morning it would be deflated again. So it was, you know, it was little stuff like that. But honestly, it was really it was short. Like we were on our first hit, and they didn't do a lot of hits that rotation. Yeah. Like it was like I don't know. I think they did like eight and a couple of other mission sets. But I think I'd only been there. I did like one CQB session with the team um, at a place there on Bagram Airfield, and was like, holy crap! Like I thought I was fast. Yeah. And these dudes are like lightning. Um, I have a long way to go. You know, and then, you know, a couple of PT sessions where, you know, the guy, the big corn fed dude on your team that looks like he can't run, you know, and you're at six or 7,000 feet at whatever Bagram's sitting at. And yeah. Homeboy throws on a protective mask and says, you want to go on a P mask run with me? And I'm like, there's no way this dude outruns me. Crushed me. Wow. At altitude with a pro mask on <laughs> around the airfield. And it, 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 it was cool. It was like all those little things. There was a lot of little moments there early on where I was like, okay. Um, I just learned the true meaning of don't judge a book by its cover. Like, I don't look like much, but I'm here. That dude doesn't look like he could run and he just crushed me. Um, so that, you know, that stuff was helpful. And then the next thing you know, we were doing a hit in, uh, in Gardez or something. And yeah. Do you remember your first engagement in the organization and what that felt like? Cause up to this point, it's all simulated, right? We're training, we're shooting paper, we're shooting still, but and you hadn't been to war prior, do you remember the first time that you got into engagement and then realized, like, maybe this is different than I thought? Or was there any thoughts that were going through your head? Uh, Yeah. I mean, well, so that trip to Afghanistan, um, I didn't shoot around other than in training. Mm-hmm. I threw some flashbangs. Um, I had a situation where I was on a roof and a guy came running up the road with an AK. It was a funny conversation, actually. And, and uh, I said, hey, you know, I'm like right side security, like on the rooftop. And I'm like, Hey, there's a dude coming up the road with an AK. <laughs> and, and my, my three, I see at the time says, so shoot him. <laughs> You're like, Oh, and I said, <laughs> I don't think he needs to be shot. Like he just didn't, yeah. there was something about dude's demeanor. And, uh, so we radioed down and the guys that were like on that street corner or whatever, picked this dude up. And he was like the local law enforcement. That was actually a friendly oh, to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And he was just coming to see what was going on. Cause we'd blown charges and some other stuff. And yeah. No shots fired, but yeah, you know, taking target pretty fast. And, and so I, I luckily I didn't shoot the guy. <laughs> yeah. 
But, he's, lucky, uh, he's lucky you didn't get shot down. Yeah, yeah. So, the, you know, the rest of that rotation goes by, and we did some other stuff and uh, had a good time, learned a lot, got to know my team. It was kind of cool joining them in combat like that because not only are you forced to assimilate and, and get better and understand your team dyna- dynamic immediately, but they sort of have to take you in yeah because you're on their left or yeah. you're on their right and um and my team absolutely did that um i had some things in common with a few of the guys and we hit it off and yeah they they were okay with me being young and dumb um, yeah and and kind of coach mentored and teach and i appreciated that so then you know we came home and back to your question of first engagement so same squadron <clears throat> um we ended up being the squadron that did the the invasion in 03 of iraq so I came back from Afghanistan. Rumor mill started. Um, our squadron commander was kind of the guy that pushed that at the time that, you know, we needed to do a true desert mobility mission. Um, that was this huge learning curve in that, well, like, well, how, what does that entail? And none of the dudes in the squadron, well, most of the dudes in the squadron had never done a desert mobility. The last time it had been done was in the first Gulf War. Yeah. And they were Especially on. long range. Nobody's done a long range extended. Especially long range. Yeah. Um, and then the unit did one of a bazillion unique things that only the unit does. And they went and found all the guys that were still in the organization or retired but still connected that did that mission. And they brought wow. them in and they conducted planning sessions and they figured out, okay, if we were going to do this today, based on what we learned then, how would we do it? And our training evolved from there. And I thought, what other organization in the world wow. does things like this? Like, and then ex- that actually executes it. And then executes it. So so there was that whole train up of of new stuff and new things and new mission set to go do this desert mobility. And and now and I'm again, I'm I'm blown away, man. I'm like I'm like, I feel like, you know, we did all these unique things in school and training and you touch on all this stuff, but at the end of the day, I'm here to do hostage rescue, man. Like, yeah. Um, and then now I'm doing this long range desert mobility. So, uh, it was incredible. Um, and so, you know, we crossed the border. There's so many stories in there that we won't go into, Yeah, but, yeah. but first engagement. So, um, it, we had called a bunch of casts on some ADA sites. And what we were doing was basically we were, uh, every day we would rest over day. We'd find a place to hide the vehicles. And then at night we would drive and cover distance, um, moving towards to and we would hit objectives along the way. So most of them were ammo supply points and things like that. Um, looking for chemical weapons or mm-hmm. WMD. And, but we would take targets of opportunity. So anytime we would run across an Iraqi air defense site or something like that, we would pull up and we had some technology on our side then that nobody else had, nobody even on the battlefield had, um, we had, you know, flares on ground-based vehicles, which didn't, didn't exist then. Um, and that happened to be on my vehicle. So that was cool. And, uh, but, uh, April 2nd, we drove a little too long. Um, we sun started coming up and we were kind of talking internally and I was driving. Um, we had, we had Penske six wheel vehicles and, and, uh, and ATVs and Brad and I teammate and I used to rotate because the ATVs had thumb throttles and mm-hmm. you'd get jello thumb if you tried to drive the ATV every single night. So yeah. we would switch back and forth between who was on the ATV or who was on the Gower. And, uh, I was on Gower that night and we were kind of talking internally about, man, this is bad. Like sun's coming up. Like we're going to be exposed. We're pretty deep in now. Um, we'd had some minor skirmish stuff, but nothing that really slapped you in the face. Some guys had, had 
taking some dudes out in a couple different areas, but I was never directly involved in that. And I was there. I just wasn't the dude behind the rifle at the time. And, and so we, we finally find this spot and it's these two bowls that we pull into this elevated piece of terrain kind of out in the middle of the desert. And right before we had done that, we passed a, a like a goat herder out in the desert. Didn't think anything of it. You know, sun's up though. We pull in, you know, hide the vehicles as best we can. And we're kind of split by this one piece of high ground in these two bowls. And, you know, we put out security like we did most nights. Um, probably way more minimal than we should. Again, mm-hmm. lessons learned. But, you know, you're exhausted. You're doing this day after day after day. And it sucked. And it had been freezing. So we were wearing, like, everything we had, exposed vehicles. It even snowed on us one night. Like, it was wow. pretty crazy. And uh, so we pull in and security goes out. It's a couple of guys, like, one on each end um, of of each of the two troops. We were split, like I said. And bag out on the ground. Uh, I don't know. A couple hours later, I am woken up by the guy next to me. And he says, hey, get your stuff on. And I'm like, what? And he's like, get your stuff on. We got dudes moving on us right now. And I'm like, what? How? You know, you ask a thousand questions in 10 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. What are you talking about? What guys? Where? Which direction? Yeah. How many of them are there? <laughs> you know? So he's like, just put your stuff on. So we're kind of scrambling, grabbing our stuff. And I look up and the guy on the 50 cal on top of the vehicle, the guy has climbed up and is on the vehicle and he's looking over the barrel, like down the sights of an old M250 and he's clicking the T&E, like click, 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 like little minor adjustment. And my brain went, it's about to go down. It's about to kick off. Yeah. And about that time, you know, machine gun fire opens up, not him coming from someplace else. Um, and they had, um, now long story short, we, we ended up getting hit, uh, on three sides. Um, so that sheep herder that we had passed had gone into the town of Baji, I believe it was, mm-hmm. um, and pretty much in a matter of an hour recruited every Fedeen fighter within a hundred miles of that location. Wow. Um, and so they hit us sort of in waves, um, they, luckily for us, they weren't very coordinated. So the first assault that pushed up on one side, nobody else was even close. So it was like a squad's worth of dudes. And they actually ended up above our position um, on this piece of high ground, and they couldn't see my troop. So they were shooting over us into the other troop. Um, and that was uh, that was unfortunately when we lost Andy Fernandez mm. um, in that, in in that, that, in that uh, initial uh, engagement. Oh, wow. So... That kind of happens, and the call goes out. You know, we got to eagle down, and um, that was probably my first real wake up mm. of okay, like I am definitely at war. This is you're not invincible, nor is this Afghanistan, yeah, like which was very different then. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody's hurt, um, so. Then RPGs started coming. We pushed a team over the hill and ended up taking care of the, that first little assault. So we had we had, you know, dealt with that. Um, and then they just kept coming. So luckily for us, one we had belt-fed weapons. So we pulled belt-fed weapons off the vehicles and moved them up to the high ground where we could engage the you know kind of on three sides of us. Um, and luckily we had large caliber weapons, so yeah. we could you know we had overmatch we could reach out and touch them so again because they weren't coordinated even though there were hundreds and hundreds of them they would just keep coming and we would just keep picking them off um so 
about 30 minutes into that, we had cast on station. Um, I think at one point, I think we had every aircraft in theater at the time, wheelbarrowed overhead, um, and, and eventually started dropping bombs. Um, call for Kazabak. Um, the birds took forever. Uh, it's because they were coming from so far away. We were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And this is, is this before declared invasion or is this, is this, this, is, this is just post, uh, we crossed in March, whatever we crossed two days before the air war started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the so air- before, before we even declared it, which was made famous on TV by dropping the bombs in Baghdad. Yeah. You guys were already on the ground in the country. We were. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. A matter of fact, the first volley of, of cruise missiles and aircraft that came into Iraq, we were woken up that morning by one of the air defense sites firing. Wow. Um, so that was another real one, but again, it wasn't a threat to us. So that initial engagement, it's a lot of, it's the initial engagement for a lot of people in the unit. I got I gotta imagine that some, you know, most of the guys hadn't been involved in direct combat Correct. prior. Yeah. And, and so, and we had sustained casualties. Um, we didn't know the status of those casualties. Um, we were taking RPG, we were taking belt fed, we were basically being attacked by three to 400 guys. Wow. And, and there were what, 40 of us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, thank God for air superiority, right? So, well, most people don't think about, you know, it immediately jumps out to me that most people don't understand that, you know, whether you're an SMU or a counterterrorism organization, and your focus is HR, DA, whatever it is, that you you guys were in this situation because we were invading uh, Iraq at the time, and that's what warfare is. It's not like it's not squared off and structured and very organized. It could be chaotic at times. Yeah, yeah, it, very, very, very chaotic. Um, I didn't think I would find myself. I mean, that whole invasion, not just that day. But we were doing raids, like we were doing seven eight infantry tactics, and I, we were we, and we would talk about it. Like we're we're trained to this extremely high level to do these very specific things, and we're out here like a LOA LOA yeah, like a ranger company <laughs> yeah, you know, with a law strapped on your back and, and you know assaulting through the wow, LOA. Man. Like, that's incredible. But yeah, so um, so medevac eventually showed up. Um, Andy, unfortunately. It had passed um, either shortly before or right after he was loaded on the aircraft. How long had Andy been in the unit uh, prior to him getting killed? He was brand new. Brand new guy. Yeah, so he was, uh, I think it was a year after me. So I went to Afghanistan, came back Yeah. about six months Reset, later. Reset, yeah. That, that group of guys showed up, and then we deployed again for the invasion. Yeah, and then it, uh, I was in MSS Fernandez, obviously named after Andy, uh, following that because fast forward a little bit, you the invasion goes well. The unit learns a lot of uh, lessons learned, changes a lot of the things that we did in mobility, even in the SIF company, working with task force uh, early on. But then you start rotating in Iraq and you go from, you know, establishing infrastructure from the ground up to deliberate targeting. And, you know, I was there those, those years of 05, 06, 07, 08, and then when stuff petered out in 09 and 10, that, those were the best years, worst in some cases because we lost the most guys, but best years for war fighting for any counterterrorism unit, especially the Joint Task Force. Um, and you were, you were balls deep in it. Yeah, I, I actually, I, 
I said that to someone recently about um, you don't really take stock of any of that stuff until way post career. Yeah. Um, and and then you start to look back and you try to take away the healthy things from it. And I think a lot of who I am is because I was fortunate enough to have good timing. Like I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. So, you know, weird things again, joining your team in, in the middle of a combat operation. I think that was significant conducting a desert mobility mission and, and invading a country that was significant removing a dictator of a country that was significant. Um, and then <clears throat> that was Oh four, right? That was Oh three, yeah. December 13th of Oh three. Okay. Um, and then, well, actually right before that, um, I don't know if anybody else had, <clears throat> but the first foreign fighters we ever saw in Iraq happened October 31st of 2003 pre capture of Saddam happened in Ramadi. We hit a target, um, in conjunction with, with two, two with the Brits, uh, they lost a guy, had had some guys injured, um, pretty substantial gunfight that night, and the dudes were all wearing the same clothes, same sneaks, same clothes. The gun, the house had nothing but guns, sleeping mats, and ammunition. Wow. They were part of the rat line where they were infilling foreign fighters from the West, and that was in 03. And they Libyans? No, I think they were, that's a good question. I don't know. Mm. They came from Syria. I don't remember. But they what, were better trained, better equipped, they, better organized. It, I mean, they engaged. Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely better equipped, but it was obvious that they were a part of what, like, they were brought into the country. Someone gave them clothing. Someone gave them weapons. Mm. Someone gave them ammunition. It was the first time we'd seen that. And that was in October. And then, yeah. So, you know, but to keep going. So that happened. Yeah. Um, I've never heard anybody tell a story of seeing or engaging foreign fighters prior to that. Um, so that was significant for yeah. us. And then, and then, you know, of course, you know, Saddam getting caught and it was the same thing, fortunate enough to be there and be a part of that. Um, and then we sort of transitioned into the next phase of war post that M much to our dismay. I think we all thought we were going home for a brief 12 hours and then we did another hit and, and it went on, but so then, you know, we transitioned in the next phase and it, and it turned into a lot more foreign fighter based. You went from getting in a gunfight, you know, once every 10 or 11 hits to getting in a gunfight every other hit. And, and that thing started changing. Um, and then I, same thing, timing, you know, at one point we decided, Hey, we're going to do daylight vehicle interdiction, like helo based stuff. And I was the first troop to do that and was wow. there and involved in that. What year was that? That was... The end of 04, maybe, going wow. into 05. So that's the first time in history that we started focusing on deliberately doing it offensively yeah. in daylight. Yeah, I mean, pre or post, post Saddam, pre that stuff, we were doing a lot of land on the X assaults. So we're doing a lot of helo based stuff, um, a lot of drive, um, like we weren't doing long distance walk ins and all that stuff. And then and then we started doing, you know, daylight vehicle interdiction stuff. You know, the the intelligence collection community got better and better and better rapidly in in that 03, 04, 05 time frame. So we had twice as much ISR. We had lots of eyes on. We had really good signal intelligence, really good human intelligence. 
Um, and we were able to target effectively, um, which lent itself to doing those things, those real quick reaction, you know, grabbing of guys. Um, and then, so I, you know, did all that. And then it progressed into like, like you said, when 05 happened, you know, which was probably our worst year. Yeah. Um, that's what affected the most change, right? Cause we lost the most number of guys because of daylight operations landing on the X. And then was it the enemy adapting to that? Cause it, cause I hear the stories, you know, uh, who else I was talking to, um, I was talking to one of the guys and, and, um, he was talking about on an infill the night prior, one of the guys, I can't remember who it was. Um, he had taken a shot to the head, to the helmet and it knocked the night vision off his helmet. Steve Langmack. Yeah. Langmack. Yeah. And, um, and then, and then he was killed and then he was killed. Yeah. Um, and that there seemed to be a lot of guys that were killed during that time period. Yeah. So you want to talk about an emotional year, um, 2005, um, so I don't know how many rotations I had done by then. I don't know. I did, I did 11 rotations. So somewhere in there, yeah. where, wherever I was in 05. Um, again, we were in a transition phase. I just come back from a deployment and I wanted to go to the Q course cause I was, I was an infantry guy by trade and I at least wanted to be an 18 series guy. So if I ever decided to leave the unit or had to leave the unit or whatever, you had something. I could go back to to an SF group somewhere and and do something else, right? Yeah. Um, so I had a conversation with the team. Said, "Hey, I really want to go do this. I really want to pick up my 18 series MOS. Like, you know, when should I do it?" And we all kind of agreed, like, "There's no good time. Like, just go now." Yeah. Um, so I did. So it was kind of at a we were at a transition time. We were changing out some personnel within the team. We had a guy leave and go to go to CDD at the time. Um, so it was like, it, it was a kind of a perfect storm of right time. At least that's what I thought. Um, so I go to the Q course while I'm in the Q course, they deploy. Uh, and we had done some surges in there and some other things. So, so they deploy that rotation. So Steve Langmack came to my team. I never even trained with him. So he showed up as a new guy on my team while I was in the school, he deployed overseas they trained him up and he took over his breacher, which was my job. And he was killed that rotation. Wow. The same trip, my best friend, um, Mike McNulty and, and another unit legend, Bob Horgan were killed in the same night. Wow. On the rotation that I chose to skip. And I didn't know what survivors guilt or remorse was. I didn't understand any of those things. And years later, I know, why that year was such a trigger for me in terms of negativity and unhealthiness in my brain. But it was all the stuff that went with that. It was the, wow, if I'd have been there, I would have been breaching the night that Steve got killed. Steve got shot through the door on a target, putting a charge up. Like, wow, that would have been me. And it wasn't, you know, I had to bury Mike and Bob, like, because I was home like, and, and weird stuff happened. Like I was in the middle of the Q course. I was in, in the MOS phase and the first sergeant came out and met me in the field and said, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. He said, uh, Hey, I know you're a Eustace guy. <laughs> and I yeah. said, yeah. And he goes, um, I don't know the names, but on the paper today, there's, it says that, you know, two master sergeants from Eustace were killed in action. And he goes, the only time it ever says that is when it's you guys. 
he's like, do you want to go make some phone calls and, and see if you know who it is? And I was like, well, it was a really cool moment, right? Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe that they did it. So I went back and called. <clears throat> Sorry. And Mike was your best friend. Yeah, still there, man, all these years later. Yeah, that's okay. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I went back and, and I, I made a phone call and, and they said, yeah, it's, it was uh, Mike McNulty and, and Bob Horgan. And, you know, Steve was awful um, because he was filling my shoes. Um, but I didn't know Steve, like, and it not, I'm not taking away from that. Yeah, I just, he yeah. wasn't, he wasn't a guy that I had grown up in a different unit with or trained with, or I knew nothing about him. I just had that hole of, damn, that would have been me. Yeah. Um, you know, Mike, Mike and I went to OTC together. We were two guys from the regular army in, in a class of SF dudes and Rangers. And, uh, and we were close, you know, our wives knew each other and, and, uh, I knew his kids well, and he had four kids and like, it was just heavy. Mm. And so they, the, the Q course actually let me go. I came back and I was messed up. And, and the guy that was the first owner of that phase was like, Hey, you know, take some time. And I was like, we're in the middle of the field problem. Like, this is a pass or fail. He's like, dude, you're good. I'm like, don't worry about it. He's like, you, you, you already do everything well. And yeah, I'm not sweating it. He's That's like, good. They get, let you get some time. He's like, here's my number, you know, call me, let me know what you need. And so I left and went home and, I can't tell you to this day, I can't tell you what I did for a couple of days. Like, I, I don't even remember. Um, uh, anyway, but, um, but yeah, so then the, the remains were coming back and, and so, uh, we buried Mike. You and were there to receive Mike and wasn't there um, to receive. No, thank God they didn't ask that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I couldn't tell you who did it. Did you guys have the funeral in the chapel? To... Yeah, we had a funeral in the chapel. Mike was buried at Arlington. Um, Bob Bob service was in Texas, so a bunch of us from the unit that were around. Um, the unit flew us down to Texas, and we attended that service and and buried Bob. Um, and that, like, again, like the world changed again that that year. That was that was 05. Um, so then I, you know, go back to squadron. Uh, and that was the first year where I was conscious of, I'm not ready to go back. Like, I, I think it was just so much. It was such an overwhelming year and to not be there and feel like you let down your mates and the, the weight of that. Um, you carried that, but did you get the impression from the guys that they had that there was a burden there? No, that, that was such a catastrophic year. So in addition to all that stuff. Um, what was F team at the time, like everybody got shot. Mm. Um, and I wasn't there. Um, so that year, everybody got shot that, that rotation that rotation. Yeah. So everybody was wounded. Um, I went back to the team and we basically started over. Um, so it was me and another guy that came in from another troop. And then, uh, we got three new guys out of school. Um, so we rebuilt F team from kind of the ashes. Um, and so I was a different person that year. I was a different person in preparing for that next rotation. I was a different person when we went back. Um, so we really threw ourselves into training then. We threw ourselves into scenario-based stuff. Like it was intense daily. Um, and, it, and it's kind of a blur. Like that stretch of time is such a blur for me. I was 
working really hard and then, you know, playing really hard at night, um, trying to wash some of that stuff away. And uh, is that it's interesting because is that a is that a pinnacle moment in your life that changed your perspective um, for the worse? I mean, did it did it set you up where you it took you a different path? Because up to that point, you were on top of the world because all the things that you had accomplished. But when you lose your best friend and the con- conduct of that journey to that objective, it's got to change things. Yeah. Um, and, and what did it change? That was the year um, I was in Atlanta on a training exercise one time, years before that. And, uh, you know, we had done much training all day and we were walking home from dinner or whatever to the hotel. And I was with a teammate and I was just ear to ear, man. I was like, I can't believe I'm here doing this. Like, this is the coolest thing ever. And he said, enjoy it while I can. And I go, what? That's a somber thing to say, dude. What do you mean? And he goes, one day you'll wake up and it'll just be a job. It'll just be what you do. Oh, five, oh six was when I woke up to that realization. Mm. This is what I do. Um, I'm good at it. I'm, I think I'm really good at it. There's countless people around me that are even better at it, but this is what I do. Um, I think I changed as a person in that everything was about the deployment in that you would leading up to that, you know, I was married at the time. I had kids. I, I got married and had kids way too young. I, I don't regret it because I have two amazing daughters to this day. But I got married too young, as a lot of guys in the service do. And, you know, marriage wasn't great. But you, I was on this vicious cycle of you deploy, you know, there was that extreme roller coaster up and down of a deployment of emotion and stress and, and, euphoria and excitement and whatever, all those emotions that go with combat. And then you'd come home and, and you'd be glad, you'd be glad that you lived through it. Um, the realization that you're still alive. Cause when you're deployed and I'm sure you know this too, like once you're a hit in, like once the first bullet goes down range, that first gunfight you get in on a rotation, you sort of go back to numb mode where it's, you just, you get up and do it and you don't think about that stuff. And if it's your time, it's your time, whether, whether that your thoughts are face-based or faith-based or they're, or they're when it's your time, it's your time or whatever, or I'm too good for that to ever happen. You kind of go into that zone. You come home and you ground it a little bit and you realize a little bit and life's good and you miss your family and you're good to your family. You're good to people around you. And then, you know, a few weeks go by or a month goes by and you start getting that, you like where what's next, what's next when the next deployment and things start getting not so good on the home front and you just work focused and then you die back into work or you're, you know, you kind of do things to take yourself out of reality. And it was an unconscious preparation for the next time I was going to war. Um, and now, you know, when you look back on it years later, you know exactly what you were doing now, Yeah. at least when you figure it out. But, but at the time you didn't, you just thought I'm so miserable. Like this is awful. Like, I just want to deploy again because I'm good at that. Like, my mates are easy. Like, there's no drama at work. We go do our job. We go catch bad guys. We go kill bad guys. We come home. Um, and that 05, 06 year, like, all that stuff, like, came to a head. Like, 
losing people, dudes getting shot, starting over with new guys. I didn't even want a relationship with the people around me. Like even the new guys on the team, like to this day, I don't know any of them. Like I knew that first core group, like we were tight. I knew them personally. I knew a lot about them. I couldn't tell you much, but the guys names and maybe where they were from and, you know, after Oh five. And I think that was another protection that was a self-protection, mm-hmm. self-preservation thing that I did that I didn't know I was doing. Um, and years later, I don't think that was healthy either. Like that was the wrong thing to do, but it was a defense mechanism. It's a it's a vicious cycle though, and it's did you notice it? Did you notice it in other men as well? Because I, I know that exact thing. I felt it and I've seen it, and it seems like it's a uh, you know when you're when you're in it and you're allured by what you're. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's very much like a dream, but then when the reality hits you in the face, you start to do things like you come up with coping and defensive mechanisms that change the way that you really live. So you don't have to face that again. And it's, and if you didn't do that, if you didn't insulate and compartmentalize certain elements of your life and patterns and routines, you wouldn't be as effective on the battlefield um, if you did it any other way, did you notice that in yourself and did you notice that in others around you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, I think the whole place got less personal, um, yeah. kind of post Oh five. Uh, and cause I think we were all doing that. Um, we were definitely more combat focused. Uh, I mean, we, not that we always weren't like the place is incredible and trains like no other place on the planet, but you know, things were very much scenario based and stuff that was happening, things that hadn't happened yet that might happen. And, um, yeah, no, I, I, you know, that was, those were the years for me where, where I did, I was, uh, I drew away from people. Um, I drank a lot more. Um, and then at the same time I was starting to experience a lot of physical ailments, um, that up into that point, you know, I felt like, I was invincible. Like I could get away with whatever. I was on the climate team. We said jump from building the stuff we did under night vision is absurd, mm. but you know, it just felt like I could do anything. Um, and I had some injuries a couple of times. Um, and then in Oh five, Oh six, I started getting real bad neck pain and thought it was just, I, I just need a chiropractic adjustment or whatever. So I'd go to the chiropractor and get adjusted and, and it would come back. And that length of time between pain and, the adjustment got smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was in the middle of a rotation. I was in so much pain. I was having adjustments downrange while we were working and excruciating pain in my neck. Um, so I came home in 06 after one of our rotations. Uh, and, um, that was, I, I left Saber squad in that year. I ended up moving to, to a different place in the building where I was doing clandestine work and some other things. So still deploying, but I deployed to the Horn of Africa. I was the first uh, first unit guy again, right place, right time. I was I was the first unit guy. I was the first army guy um, back in Somalia since '93. Um, actually doing missions in Somalia, and that that was another one where I just happened to be, I happened to say yes to something. Were you there's a in the spine there's a bowl, or something? It's in a display case. Is that you? Yeah. <laughs> When I first saw your face, I was like, 
I recognize him, and I'm not sure why. You want to talk about the worst thing the unit can ever do to you? It's memorialize you for history. Single you out. <laughs> That's you. Yeah, you want to get people to hate you? Get That's insane. Out. Yeah, so... Oh, my gosh. So that... <laughs> yeah, that was that year. That was 07. Okay. Um, we got off our point, but... That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, fuck, man, that's crazy. Yeah, that so that year that I, I, I left, I didn't want to leave squadron. Um, I was too IC. Uh, all I wanted to do was go to war. Like I, w- that's all I wanted to do, and that was unhealthy. I, like I didn't know it at the time, but yeah, I just felt more comfortable deployed than I did at home. Yeah, um, which is common. Yeah, yeah. and uh, a guy that had been my team sergeant for a brief stint in all that calamity of 05, 06, um, that I liked and respected had moved over to, to, you know, do other work in the building and had asked for me by name, um, to come over and join him. And I didn't know that. Um, so then indirectly I got asked if I would like to attend a training course, um, which was really a tryout, um, and to go do that. And I said, yes, I would love to do that because I see myself doing that later on in the organization, but not now because I'm getting ready to take this team. And that's all I've ever wanted to do was be a team sergeant in this building. Like I've been on F team my entire career. We wrote the book on urban assault climbing. Like I've done all these, things. I had all these firsts. All I wanted it to do was be my team. I don't know why it was so important to me. It just was now yeah. when I look back on it, it it didn't make any difference. Like everybody's there doing a job. Like it, yeah. was, it was just that it was a milestone in my head at the time. But, um, so I went to that course, that selection effort, um, and it went well and I came back and they said, yeah, you're moving over there. And I was like, what? And they said, yeah, you're moving over to work with Jesse. And I said, I, I said, I didn't want to do this yet. Like I'm, I'm getting ready to take this team. Like, come on, man, I've been on the same team the whole time. It's finally going to be mine. Like this next rotation is mine. Mm-hmm. And they're like, nah, man, you got to go now. So I moved over there and, you know, I'm pissed. Yeah. Um, Jesse said some really good things to me at the time. Then he let me in on, hey, you know, I asked for you by name. He might have made that up. He's probably laughing right now if he listens to this. <laughs> but, but, what, but he said the right things that I needed to hear. Yeah. That, that, hey, man, you know. There's a task and purpose for you. One percenters are in the building, and there's a tenth of a percent of the one percenters that can do this, and I think you could do this, and that's why I asked for you. And that was huge. Mm-hmm. Like, when all you have is work at this point in your life and everything else is falling apart, I needed at least that, or I would have cratered that year. Yeah. Um, so that same in that same stretch of time, um, the, the Horn of Africa mission set started spinning, um, and there was a new task force created in DC. Um, and we were kind of combining AFO like forces from the different tiers. Um, we called it the rainbow coalition cause mm-hmm. we had two guys from green, two guys from blue, two guys. From- <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No shit. <laughs> and so, uh, I was the, the f- one of two guys from the unit that were the first two to deploy in support of that new task force to the Horn of Africa. And, uh, We'd, thankfully, for the wisdom of Stan McChrystal and Macon Blue and Green do exchanges um, where they gave us guys and we gave them guys for those rotations in the early 2000s. Um, We knew a lot of those guys. And so those guys that were my peers 
were also at the point in their career where they were moving into that line of work for the yeah. Navy. Yeah. Um, so I ended up in the Horn of Africa with a couple of guys that had run with us prior. So nice. we knew them. Um, and at the time in the Horn, you know, we were still tracking HVTs from the embassy bombings in, in Nairobi and, and Tanzania. Um, Harun Fazul and Slade Nabhan were the two guys. Uh, they're both still on the international most wanted list. Wow. And we also knew that, um, you know, JSOC was very aware of the training network that was occurring throughout the Middle East and, the, and in Africa, and that they were recruiting guys in the Middle East and Middle Eastern countries. They were transporting them via Yemen down to the Horn of Africa and Somalia, and they were training them in training camps in and around southern and central Somalia. And then they were shipping them back up to the fight to go kill Americans. Wow. And so we were there mm -hmm. to figure out how to, A, target HPTs that were down there, and B, disrupt the network. Um, and small group of guys, um, very interagency heavy. Uh, we had limited ISR. Um, we had fairly decent, albeit not real-time, signal intelligence. Um, and so, so human intelligence hmm. and we had some host nation gorillas that we were using in country um so again right place right time now all of a sudden i find myself in the middle of an sfoda mission with a navy seal and <laughs> like this weirdest crazy, man. and a cct guy yeah and some indige um that i wouldn't trust any further than i could throw them and they're skinny but i can't throw them that far yeah and um so this is a First, that representation that I've walked by a thousand times that I've actually paid attention to because it was different, you know, in the historical context for people who are listening to this is, you know, JSOC as a whole and what people know of McChrystal's, you know, Task Force 16, 17, you can name it a, a hundred different task force was set on killing, capturing members of Al Qaeda in Iraq at the time via a joint task force of a, the best units in the world for us to take our focus off that and do anything else in the world was very difficult. And you never really heard about this, but this is a, a historical first. And I remember even when I was uh, walking through the compound and walking through the spine of paying attention to that, what's the first that it was? It's the first time in Mogadish or in Somalia since 93. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's the first time since since the Black Hawk Down incident that yeah. a guy was back there. I was very aware of that. Yeah. Um, How did that feel? And just in the understanding your place in history and what how important that mission was. I mean, what was that like? For me and the one other guy that was there with me, who happened to be the brother of one of my longtime teammates, one of several pairs of brothers in the unit. But, yeah. Um, he went on to work for the FBI, still does to this day. But we were very aware of that. Wow. Of, of the significance. Matter of fact, the itch of the two of us to get back in Moog specifically was huge. Like we talked about it all the time because we knew what a big deal that was. And so, yeah. And again, back to the, the knowledge of, of Stan McChrystal, you know, General McChrystal was the guy that, you know, is coined with, you need a network to fight a network. Mm -hmm. And, and AQ at the time was a massive network that encompassed not just the Middle East, but the Horn of Africa, the Far East, they were all over. Um, and he realized that we needed to break up. If we really wanted to disrupt that network and kill that thing, we needed to break into small teams around the globe and hit them 
other places mm-hmm. to disrupt it. So, which is global pursuit is the 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 coin term for JSOC. Yeah. yeah. So, so this was kind of the early days of that yeah. stepping out of the Middle East, and uh, and so yeah, so we were working with Indige. We were doing some training stuff with some guys in, in the northern part of the country, and um, to use them as an action arm, they were probably the ones we could trust the most. Um, the Brits had a presence um, in central part of the country. They had a, a house they lived in there. Um, Somalia was sort of three distinct states at the time. You had Puntland, you had Somaliland, and whatever they call the other one. Um, I can't even think of it. Anyway, but so we would go in and out um, regularly, and then lo and behold, we got a hit on on Harun Fazul and Slay Namhan, and they were in Mombasa, Kenya. And we used to run back and forth between Mombasa and Nairobi. We were working on the embassy in Nairobi. And we got a hit, SIGINT hit. And they were, the SIGINT that we would get was late. It was like 24-hour rolls um, because of the types that they were using then and because almost all of our assets were dedicated to the Middle East, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. So we didn't have a whole lot. And they said, yeah, they're, they're, there's a whole bunch of dudes. They're loading on a boat best we can gather in Mombasa. They're headed north to Moog where they're going to pick up some more people or Kismayo and then Moog. And then they're going on to, to Yemen for further infiltration back into the Middle East. And we're like, man, this is like a, we, we gotta, we gotta do something. So every scenario under the sun, sun got kicked out. We were in a unique position where we could plan whatever we wanted, man. Like if we could dream it up, we could yeah, do it. And it was going to get done. And it was going to get done. Um, it was just assets is what we were lacking. So, so we ended up coming up with a plan in the middle of coming up with our plan, just we were actually in the air going to link up with our, our G force, um, our gorillas in country. So we had some help because again, there's three of us wow. <laughs> like, like that's it. Yeah. And we know there's like 18 to 30 guys on this boat with these two who knows, you know, all suspected foreign fighters are coming out of the training camp. At least that's what we were getting. Well, in the middle of us flying, they off the Horn of Africa, huge waves, right? There's big issues there with shipping traffic and all that stuff. And they had a high sea state day and they actually, the high seas forced them ashore in Northern Somalia. So they, they sort of ran aground in this little village, this little fishing town called Bargal, Somalia. And Bargal is, weird in that it's way up on the horn of the horn of africa it's like right there on the tip <clears throat> and it's desert and there's the beach but then like not even a mile from the beach is these real like mountains um not big mountains but like desert mountains kind of like prescott like high desert yeah and it's 120 degrees or whatever so <clears throat> these guys crash land there they end up getting in a gunfight with the townspeople um, and they like went into town to get some supplies or like fix and they tried, they just tried to take it by force, like whatever they wanted. Um, so then, then we were getting reports back from the village that, oh yeah, they're all, they're heavily armed and they're from all over and da, 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 da. And, you know, they took this and took that. We got in a gunfight and they actually, they ran up into the hills cause their boat was damaged. They couldn't get back on their boat. So we changed plans right then. Frago, we're like, Hey, we got to go. Like we're, we're going now to that town. If they're hole up in the mountains, at least we can pin them down. It's 120 degrees outside. We'll figure it out. So we did. So we landed, <clears throat> hopped on a truck, drove out in the desert, got on another plane, 
flew in that plane to another part of the desert, linked up Jeez. with some other trucks, drove 14 hours to get to Bargal. So we are, I don't know, a six-hour flight from any help um, or Kazavak. We had Navy ships off the coast at the time doing counter-piracy patrolling. So we made a plan on the ground. We're like, okay, we have like 12 indige and the three of us. We have no air, can't get any air. They won't give us any air. Our Kazavak is a six-hour flight away. How are we going to do this? So, again, because it was the Rainbow Coalition, we had three unique perspectives coming together. We had a Navy guy, we had an Air Force guy, we had an Army guy. Um, Air Force guy says, and, and again, this happened in whatever order, but I'm, yeah. I'm going to give you the gist of it. But <laughs> the Air Force guy is, hey, man, there's an old Russian airfield that's right on the south side of this town. Like, let's bounce out there and survey that thing so at least we have a place to bring in or get out aircraft. Perfect. Great idea. Let's go do that first. So we leave the Gs at the base of the mountain at the last known point that the, the bad dudes walked up into the mountain. Like, at least be visible so they see you. Yeah. They're not going to walk inland because it's thousands of miles of desert from there. And yeah. It's 120 degrees outside. If they go south... It's a thousand miles of desert. <laughs> There's yeah. nowhere to go. If they go towards the water or the village, our guys are there. At least they'll get in the shootout with them and we'll hear them. Yeah. So we went down, surveyed the airfield, made sure we could land a fixed wing aircraft there. Next thing was, well, what are we going to do for fire support? So we made some calls back and it's this crazy SATCOM connection. We're calling one place. They're calling an embassy. The embassy's calling DC. Like this is an international wow. thing. We're like, well, we got these boats offshore. They got guns. Let's call one of those boats. So we call a naval vessel doing counter-piracy operations in the blind. Tell them that U.S. troops are on the ground, and we need to pre-plan targets with them. <laughs> They're like, crank collar, crank collar. <laughs> Literally. So they, you can hear the excitement in their voice yeah. on the radio. So we proceed to lay out TRPs for naval gunfire. In support, if we got in trouble, at least we'd have some pre-existing ones to shift off of. And at the time, we're kind of laughing. We're like, when's the last time somebody called in naval gunfire? Jesus. Like, no way that happens, right? <laughs> we still don't know how many dudes are up in the mountains. So <clears throat> we get done with that. So we've got the boat on board. We asked the boat to come in over the horizon line so you can see the ship off the coast. Yeah. And then the one air asset that we did have that was SIGINT related, couldn't drop bombs, we got them to fly in, both one to give us some real time or closer to real time, still wasn't. It was about two and a half hours by the time it would go where it needed to go and then come back to us in the form of information. But we brought them in to fly overhead. So we put a plane overhead so they could hear it, not knowing what it is. We put a ship offshore so they could see it. Our plan was to sweat them out. We'll just sit here. High-vis presence. They got nowhere to go. If they come out of the mountains, if they go in, they're going to die. If they yeah. go south, they're going to die or we're going to see them. If they come out of the mountains, hopefully they're going to run out of food, water supplies, and dudes are going to start being heat cats. We'll just chill right here. So we're sitting there in our little patrol base with our Gs. And then the G commander, <laughs> whatever you want to call him, <laughs> the clan leader, yeah, comes up to us and he's like, let's go get them. And he's just like, bored. He's like, <laughs> we're like, what? And he's like, let's go get him. He says, the townspeople said they have a lot of guns and they have money. He's like, let's go get him. 
And then we put it together. We're like, you know, money and guns are power in Somalia. Oh yeah. It's a, it's clan mentality. Yeah. They, they want to go shoot these guys and take their guns. Yeah. And so Good we're incentive like, for indige. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, no, like we can't do that. We don't need to do that. And he's like, well then drop bombs on him. And we're like, no, well, no, we don't want to do that. And he's like, why not? You have a plane overhead. Well, we don't want to tell this guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are they going to drop a grenade out of the window? You know what I mean? Like, it's just there for, for dramatic effect. You know, like, they, they have no idea. That's so crazy. So, <clears throat> we're going on this back and forth with this guy. At the same time, we get a we get an intel report that says, yeah, they made one last call, and they're hole up. It's vicinity where we are. So, we, we've got a pretty good look fix on where they are in the mountains, and they're, like, over this one little range. And we're like, yeah, man, we're just going to wait him out. So another couple hours goes by and we're all sweating. It's about five o'clock in the afternoon. Sun's starting to go down. And the, the chief comes over and he says, if you're too scared to go get him, we're going without you. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I said, Bashir, give us five minutes, man. Like, just give us five minutes. We'll come up with a quick plan. We'll talk. I was like, you got it. So he walks back to his guys. Now, none of them even speak English. He's the only dude that speaks English yeah. out of the 12 guys that we have. I look at Phil, the CEO, and Brady, the CCT guy, and I start laughing. And they go, what? And I go, you know, man, I know I was never on an ODA. I just went through the Q course. But this is the most Q course <laughs> moment I have ever this heard This is Robin of. Sage 101. Like, literally, <laughs> the dude just man-carded us. So awesome. <laughs> right? And I'm like... And Phil's like, I don't, they might turn on us, man. Like, they are our only in, like, what are we going to do? Swim to the destroyer off the coast? Like, like we got nothing. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, we got to do something. We're like, all right, hasty plan. Frag go again. We got the airfield laid out. We got people. We got good comms. We got the ship offshore for fire support. Let's just do a movement to contact. So we bring Bashir over. We have a conversation with him. We're like, you need to explain to your guys, this is how we're going to do it. So we're bounding overwatch. We're going to go up over this ridge. You guys are going to put, you're going to put your machine gun up on high ground, whatever. We're yeah. got a good plan. So we start moving. Sun's starting to go down. Just as about we crest the first little hill, we hear the guys up top, up above us that we put up higher, open up. And then we hear gunfire down below. And then we move up further on the ridge to see. So it's, the three of us, because we were not splitting up. We have two gun teams that are split north and south of us. And then, so three, six. We got about four guys with us, and then and then Bashir. Yeah. Get up on the hill. We crest right behind these great big rocks. And now we're taking fire from, like, three separate directions, pinging off the rocks, whatever. I look to the left. They're maneuvering up the ridge line towards us. So luckily, we were on a piece of high ground. In that first big volley of fire... Now, mind you, we're in, I'm in Africa, <laughs> working out of an embassy. The kit that I have with me is like a set of plates and a chest rack. Yeah. I don't even have a helmet on. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> no frags. I got basic load. Yeah. Basically, um, you know, rifle and pistol, but no frags. And we're all like that. I think we had like one smoke. Um, but we just did we just didn't have stuff what we didn't know it was gonna go down like it did. Yeah. And we made a decision to react because we had to. It was an opportunity we couldn't pass up. And they let us do it. So we did it. And uh so guys are maneuvering up. In that first big volley of fire, Bashir gets hit 
three times. Jeez. Um, so he goes down and, and Phil is pulling Bashir back. Brady and I engage the guys on the hill coming up. Luckily, deal with that. And then we're taking fire, but we're taking it from indefilate. So they're below us. Mm-hmm. Again, if I'd had frags, would have ended really quickly. Um, that continues to increase. So belt fed. So we're sitting on this ridge, getting peppered up from below. And then we can see them maneuvering on the south side. Bashir, who's been shot three times, is on his little radio. They use these little handheld radios between him and his two gun teams. And he says that the gun team to the south of us has taken casualties and the gun team to the north of us has taken casualties. So now I don't know how many of my G's are hit. So the three of us are like, all right, well, enough of this. These guys aren't going anywhere. We knew this was a bad idea to begin with. Before one of us takes a round, we dealt with the first attack. We know that they're coming with more. Brady's like, screw it, man. Let's call in some naval gunfire. And we're like, okay. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so we scoop a shear up. <clears throat> we start coming off the hill. I call in troops in contact over SATCOM back to headquarters, which is ending up in D.C. We didn't know this at the time. Yeah. This is probably the biggest event that ever took place Holy on the, crap. On the wor- in the world at that time. So, yeah, so Brady's on the horn with the boat, calling naval gunfire. As soon as we come off the backside crest of the ridge, Brady unloads with them, and they just start banging away. Um, I think we shot, I don't know, 36 rounds or something like that, and sort of dropped them in the little piece of defilade that the the majority of the fire was coming from, and then we walked it north and south. Um, once we, once Bashir had told us, yeah, the, the two gun teams are off the ridge. So all this is happening as we're backing away, breaking contact. Bashir's like, yep, we're dragging him along. He's talking on the radio. Like it was this crazy scenario. Things, crazy. This stuff you never, yeah. you know, when you're used to having the best in the world around you and here now there's three of you and some dudes you don't even know yeah. that you hope don't shoot you in the night. And so naval gunfire comes in. Drop a bunch of bombs. <clears throat> we move back, kind of established casualty collection point, and they're trickling in. So we end up with six guys that are wounded substantially. Um, Bashir's were all through and throughs, nothing catastrophic. So he's still at least vocal yeah. and could communicate. So he helped us in reeling them all back in. I'm talking to the rear because now I'm truce in, contract, in contact in a country that we're not supposed to be in. We just shot naval gunfire into a country that we're not supposed (laughs) to be in from a vessel that isn't there in support of our operations and didn't even know we were there. Like all these things. And you know, you don't think about it at the time. Like we were going to get those HVTs. And so all that goes down. We end up plugging holes, patching up all the dudes that are wounded as best we can. Um, We, get one of the guys to go steal a pickup out of the village, come back up. We load the wounded in a pickup. We leave the contingent of guys that aren't wounded, which was six of them there in their little quasi patrol base again. And we take the casualties and go down to the airfield. So somewhere in there we had called back. I had called and requested uh, an aircraft to come in and pick up our wounded. And I intentionally didn't tell them, that it wasn't one of us. Because they wouldn't have came. Because they wouldn't have came. And maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. But there's there's a lot of stories on the backside of that about what happened after that bird took off and some stuff that I wouldn't say publicly, but not good stuff. Yeah. Um, So I'm glad that I did what I did. Um, And however many hours later, that bird showed up and they had 
what I found out was the guy that was technically in charge of our operation, who wasn't with us, who was all the way back in Nairobi, or I'm sorry, was in in um, Camp Lemonet in Djibouti. So we had folks in northern Somalia, where we left out of. We were in Bargal on the Horn. We had part of our element in Djibouti, and then they were answering to Nairobi, who was talking to SecDef in D.C. during the entire operation. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> so the guys in Djibouti that was supposed to be our troop commander wasn't a unit guy, wasn't Army Knight, wasn't, wasn't one of our guys wasn't a Navy guy, I'll say that. But he was technically in charge. Um, when I called troops in contact over SATCOM and said that we had taken casualties, dude went catatonic. Couldn't make a call on the radio, didn't know what to do. Luckily for me, my teammate was sitting next to him there in Djibouti, organized the PJs that were on site, rounded up our guys, went and talked to the pilots in the aircraft. Like he put all that together. Wow. So as soon as we called, Bird was already inbound. So we end up landing the aircraft. He gets off the plane. Another PJ that was with us gets off the plane. Like three three guys. Yeah. You know, there's big hugs. We are covered in blood. They're like, are you guys okay? It's not mine, man. Like we're good. Yeah. Load the casualties on the bird. And they're like, what do you want us to do with them? And we go, fly them back to Djibouti. And they're like, what? And we're like, dude, they're like our allies that got wounded in the process of conducting one of our operations. Like, we need to help these guys. You need to fly them back to Djibouti. And they're like, well, what are you doing? And I go, well, the three of us and the three that you just brought are staying right here. And we're going back up to the mountain. So now it's dark, right? Yeah. It's been dark for a couple hours. So that's what we do. So they resplice. We load the wounded in. Bird takes off. I didn't think about it from that point forward. Like it's gone. Whatever they'll yeah. deal with. They'll deal with it when it lands yeah, yeah. with foreigners <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> they'll take them to the hospital there at Camp Lamonet in Djibouti, and I don't know. The Navy will deal with them. They'll right? manage it. So we go back up, link up with their guys. There's no movement. Nothing's happened. So we wait till daylight. <clears throat> so the next morning, uh, we're like, hey, we're we're gonna have to go back up there. It's been quiet all night. There's been no comms traffic, no nothing. Haven't seen anything, so we did it again. So with what we had left, now we have six of us at least, um, and more firepower and more equipment because the guys brought it in with them, and we go back up over. Um, majority of them were dead or dying. Um, it was a collection of people from all over the world. There were two actual Brits, um, both British passport holders, um, two guys that were part of the foreign fighter network. There was a Syrian guy. There was a Yemeni guy that was the head dude for the movement of foreign fighters from Yemen to the Horn of Africa and back and forth constantly. Wow. Uh, they called him the bear or something. I don't remember the guy's name, but anyway. Foreign legion of bad guys. It really was. Yeah. Um, so we ended up killing about 18 guys. A um, bunch of intel came out of it. There was a lot of hilarity that happened after that that's kind of irrelevant, but... The reason that thing happened in the building, and I didn't even know this, but I came back from that, and um, an Intel analyst friend of mine in JSOC actually told me, like, do you know what that did? And we're like, no. And they're like, yeah, all of the AQ leadership in the Middle East has now lost faith in the training and movement network responsible for the foreign fighter program that's going into and out of the Horn of Africa, and they shut it all down. 
Wow. So there's zero. An entire movement. rat line you shut down. An entire rat line of folks from all over. That, Jesus. That's, I mean, they were teaching them ID making. Like it yeah. was, it was very, very impactful. Yeah. And for me, with all of that other stuff, right place, right time, for me, it was the most significant of anything I was ever a part of, even though nobody ever knew about it. Yeah. Because we did it from start to finish. We made some calls that we didn't have to make. We took advantage of being right time, right place. We worked with the interagency community. We developed the intelligence. Like all of those things were just a collection of guys um, with good ideas and, and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of let's go do it. Um, so the funniest part of the whole story is, so we're done. The next morning, they bring a bird back in for us. Um, we've got a couple of the bodies. One of the guys we thought was Harun Fazul looked just like him. They brought in an FBI team, which is another hilarious story, but, uh, they brought in an SSE team basically. Mm -hmm. So rather than me take them up to the site, we brought the, the one body that we thought was him back and we brought intelligence for the rest of the guys and all the stuff we collected off of them. So they get off the plane, unzip the body bag. It's not him. I'm like that fast. You know, it's not him that fast. And they're like, yeah, he had appendicitis. He had his appendix removed in this year. He's got no scar from having his appendix removed. It's not him. Man. Okay. Shit. That was before we knew the significance of what had just happened. Yeah. But yeah. so we were a little bummed right there. But anyway, so, so we load up, happy to be live. We fly back to Djibouti. We land in Djibouti, you know, hit the tarmac. The interagency guys that we were working with are all there. It's all hugs and hoorahs and, and kind of a cool moment, right? And we go into the hangar that we were basing out of there in Djibouti. And it, it's, it's time the Navy's running it. So that's a Navy base in that shithole that is Djibouti. Yeah. Oh, God, I hate that place. And we're not even there. Like, we're there long enough to, like, take a shower and change our clothes. And a guy pops in, and no one ever walked in there, right? Like, some Navy dude just, like, knocks on the door and opens the door of the hangar. And he's like, hey, the base commander or admiral or whatever he is that's in charge of Camp Lemonet and the Horn of Africa mission, so all the anti-piracy stuff that was going on at the time, wants to see you. And uh, we're like, what? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, nervous for you right now. Like, isn't there someone in our food chain that can answer that, that call? handle that? Like, yeah. dude, I'm a knuckle dragger. Like, I'm, Damn. I'm an enlisted guy. Like, I don't want to go brief some dude that's probably going to chew our head off because he didn't even know we were there. Yeah. And so, whatever. We, like, walk on over there, walk on over to the camp go to his office, you know, one of his little staffies grabs us and go in the office and it's him and like his chief of staff, a couple other guys. And I wish I could remember the guy's name, but he's like, how you fellas doing? We're like, well, we're pretty good now. And he's like, pretty rough, wild <laughs> 24 hours, huh? We're like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, so uh, why don't you tell me the story? And I'm like, all right. So between Phil and I, we sort of tell him the story about how we got there and why we did it. And again, I'm waiting for this guy to just Come lose it, yeah. throw us out of country, like something crazy, yeah. no. you know, like stories you've heard. And we get done telling the story and he looks at us and he goes, that is the coolest shit I have ever heard. <laughs> and oh, and Phil, Phil the seal, who's a wild man, yeah. busts out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still like, oh, God, this is going to go bad. And he's like, the three of you decided. <laughs> and you're like, 
Oh shit! Here and we're comes. like, we're like, yeah. And he's like, again, that is the coolest <laughs> shit I have ever heard. Damn. And it was really neat. You know, it was That's kind of, awesome. It was a fun moment. Yeah. And I, like I said, I wish I knew that guy's name because it would be great to run into him again. Yeah. Like all these years later. But so anyway, so I came back from from uh, that rotation and um, ended up having to, to like talk about the whole thing because and I'm giving you the brief version there's yeah. so much yeah, the complexities yeah but i had to talk about that like in the unit and with other organizations and um we were very critical of some of the other organizations that were supporting it because of some of the things that happened in conjunction with that um and then the moral of the story at the end of the day was you got to support the guy on the ground yeah and the guy on the ground is who makes the call and so there were some issues that were addressed to that but yeah i know i know it just being on the back end of that i wasn't obviously involved in any of that but hearing about things that had happened and then being part of that um, um, uh, organization, that like set the precedence for what we understand as like global pursuit, and and then especially with interagency command and coordination and logistical support and everything else, it's like when the guys are going after it, man, you have to support them. Yeah, you know, it, just like you would for a, a a blowout or whatever it may be. Except these guys like you were operating as singletons, you know. What I mean, like it's it's you. You're, there is no squadron. It's just you doing yeah. doing the deed. How'd that feel? I mean, like I'm the opposite of you. I'm the guy who never had the b- good timing. Like I missed every. <laughs> like I'm in the Q course when the invasions are going on. Like I just had bad timing. How does that feel? I mean, that's just such a impactful. I mean, even in our experiences with that organization and special operations and special forces it, it's been notarized and chronicled as being a significant event in uh special operations history i mean and it and and we're still in the modern time it's not like it happened in the 60s this is something that happened now i've never had anybody say that to me it's it just i mean i haven't told yeah. that story but like what's well, it's, i recognize your face because i remember the picture and i remember how important like i remember even seeing it and thinking to myself because a lot of people don't understand this and we can't talk about it for obvious reasons in detail there are different parts of organizations and special operations that do clandestine and covert activity that you'll never hear about that uh even in that building people didn't know and couldn't know because they weren't read on absolutely and which isn't it's just amazing when people even in that building are like what the fuck is up with this shit and i'm like well dude there's there's a reason they compartmentalize certain things because you don't fucking need to know about that because you're not a part of it i i didn't used to but i love the fact now that if you and i we're in the same place at the same time in the same situation. And you told the story and I told the story, you're going to get different information. Mm-hmm. And I, lo- I love that. And I love the fact that there were guys in the building doing stuff that I had no clue about that as the years go by now, because I mean, like what we're talking about, that was 2007, man. Yeah. That was how many years ago? Forever ago. That's 13 years ago. Yeah nothing about the battlefield then or even the organizations then both good guy and bad guy look anything like they did then now yeah 100 you know? and so it's fun when you do get to do this and i don't do it very often yeah. this is a unique situation well, you can correlate the the information and it just yeah it's, oh, it's so, so, so they yeah. so come to find out it 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 disrupted that whole network for about a two-year stretch where um you know things went on later but 
but it really did. It shut it down. And um, the Unistar Major at the time thought that it was a significant event. Like he, he you know, he was a, a Mo guy. Um, it was Chris Ferris, and, mm. and he was a Unistar Major at the time, and he was a, a Mogadishu Mile guy. So I think it meant more to him um, than most guys in the unit for that reason. So he did. He he put my picture in a write-up about that, like they have other things memorialized in the spine. And, and I was so honestly upset when he did it because the worst thing that can happen to you in an organization full of ego and type a and wanting to win the worst thing that can happen to you is to be singled out mm-hmm. and so i think that for me was difficult i think that makes the, the the joke amongst unit guys is if you ask two unit guys opinion about another unit guy one will tell you he's the greatest dude ever and i'd go to war with him any day and the other one to tell you i wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire <laughs> And that's just the way our community works. Yeah, and it gets better as the <laughs> years so go by. True, but it's a it's a it's it's a doggy dog. I'm gonna be first. I'm better than you, world. Yeah, and that's that's the reason you're successful. But it's also the reason it's toxic. Yeah, you you yeah you do that and you transition into um, uh, doing other things in special operations. And we'll kind of fast forward a little bit because I want to get to the point in which you were doing a little bit of uh, force modernization. So for those that don't know what force modernization is, you guys have heard the podcast with Kevin Owens. And Kevin Owens was a, a teammate of mine. Uh, he was a sniper with me. He was actually my senior. He ran SODIC. And then he went to the G8, which is force modernization, which you know changes the shape of... Uh, enabling and facilitating special operations with equipment, training, and the list goes on. And so, you know, I, I, I don't want to gloss over a, a career, but I want to get to the point in which you you fight through the GWAT, you have all these experiences, and it's a collection of experience that you can't replicate not doing what you did. You had all these combat rotations and uh, kit, training, you've seen it all. And now you get to a point where you're working at the USASOC G8 and you have to be the solution for a lot of problems that guys in your position prior were facing in the field. How was that overall experience for you uh, operating in that space? Uh, I, I think I've said to people in the past, it's both the most frustrating and most rewarding job I ever had. Mm. Um, and I think Kevin talked about it with you. But the the red tape and bureaucracy and pain and suffering and time that is the Department of Defense Acquisition System is a behemoth, man. It's it's crazy. Um, leaving, uh, being on teams and doing that kind of work and deploying and then going to a staff job in and of itself is a challenge. I think I found comfort um in the fact that I could still impact the force, um, that I could still take lessons learned and, and, you know, kit that I had been familiar with that maybe the large portion of the force had not seen yet, or um, the fact that I had some knowledge to bring to the table and that I had the passion and the drive to continue to fight to get those things for the guys. Um, And when you finally get one over the finish line and you get it out to the teams, um, sure, for every two dudes that say, Hey man, this thing's awesome. One of them is going to say, this is a piece of crap. Yeah. Um, and it's a very thankless job. Um, but it's rewarding in the sense that, you know, the, the time and energy and people involved with making that stuff happen. So 
Um, I was lucky, I guess, at the time. Um, I wasn't in a good place in my life. Um, you know, post-unit career, I left a unit not of my own choice um, for yet another catastrophic mistake that I made. Um, I ended up in the G8 through some mutual friends and, and some luck, I suppose. Um, combat development was something I was always interested in and thought, yeah, yeah, when I'm an old guy and I'm broke, uh, I'll do that. Um, because I always sort of viewed it as a good step off point to life after the service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had known some guys in the past, guys that I was in the unit with that had transitioned into CDD, uh, you know, into that force mod world, um, and put a lot of good years in doing that and then successfully transitioned to the outside to go work for companies and continue to give back to the community and, and do that stuff. So I had a couple of, uh, I don't know, role models, if you will, out there that guys that I had watched go through it and do it. So I always kind of had that in the back of my mind. Um, but I got there at a time when we were growing. So I was originally at USASOC, G8, um, doing target engagement, doing weapons and optics stuff. And then uh, right after I got there, they did a reorganization and they moved all of the the green suitors, if you will, um, non-civilians down to, to SF Command, now First Special Forces Command or whatever they call it, G8. And there were like three dudes in there then. Um, and we built that shop into about 23 guys, about two guys for each commodity area. I did soldier systems for two years. Um, so all your body armor, nylon, helmet, eyewear, clothing. Um, worked on a lot of cool stuff. Met people in industry that I had known before and or, or did things with people I had known before and then met new people. Um, and I really got into it, man. I kind of dived into it. I didn't really have anything else at the time. My personal life was kind of a mess, um, and work for me was kind of all I had, so I put everything I had into it. Um, so two years, really good, successful years doing soldier system stuff professionally, uh, and then we lost our, our officer again, so we didn't actually have a G8. Um, so then I transitioned to be the, the deputy chief or slash NCOIC, um, and it was me and a, and a W4. Um, that kind of ran the shop for the next three years. Uh, and and uh, I got to see, I don't know, like 30-some programs across the goal line and um, move a lot of money around, make a lot of good decisions. We, we built um, an entire system, a, a rating system, where we would send all of the current programs of record on the books and upcoming potential requirements on the books out to each of the groups and groups would rate them in order of most important, least important mission, critical or non-critical. Uh, that in itself was a comical exercise because people think ballistic helmets are mission critical. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, but, yeah. but depending on who, who the group was, what they were doing at the time, they would rack them and stack them in a different order. And then we would take all of that. And in sort of democratic fashion, we would put that together, spit out a list of exact prioritized requirements for the entire regiment and then that's what we would pursue financially with delegated monies. And that's what we would go into the next POM cycle and work towards. Um, so it was as, as democratic and diplomatic as we could make it. You're never going to make everybody happy. Um, but we were really, really good at it for a pretty good stretch there. And we got a lot of good stuff done for the regiment that most people will never know. Yeah, One of the things the, that I wanted to highlight, because it affected me as a team sergeant and then even as a sergeant major, is um, the Ops Corps helmet. Yeah, I mean, before people don't realize this, but before we had the Opscore helmet that was actually cycled into our equipment and issued to us, we were using for free file operations Gemtex, yeah, which 
I mean, gym tech is like a cannonball helmet that you see on somebody's head. It's like a fighter pilot helmet. Any kind of night vision attachment. If you weren't in an SMU running a pro tech, you were, you were, you weren't jumping night vision. You were jumping chem lights. And so that, in addition, you know, for snipers, like as a sniper team sergeant, my guys couldn't wear regular helmets because they had to get a good cheek weld on a long gun or get, you know, get an objective lens or eye relief on an optic. And you guys did that from the, from scratch, right? We did, um, not from scratch. So within the SOCOM acquisition process, um, there's a thing called a national theater transition. Um, the national mission force under us SOCOM is technically chartered, um, to be the combat development directorate for all of us SOCOM. So on paper, um, they're supposed to be the first to receive new and emerging equipment um, and things that give you, you know, tactical or battlefield overmatch and um, to test and evaluate those. And then that information is allowed to be utilized to field that equipment to the larger SOCOM force. Uh, but nobody had ever done it. So it existed on paper. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> And and it was talked about like an option, like it briefed well, you know, when you hear people say that, but nobody had ever done it. So I, I was an asshole. Like I didn't care about getting promoted. I decked out a Sergeant Major because I knew there was no way I was going to stick around for another five years, which is what it would have been. I was coming up on 20. So I, all I cared about was the job and the guys. Mm -hmm. Um, so the helmet thing, we're like, ah, you know, this needs replaced, that needs replaced, this needs replaced. Guys really want a new helmet. And at the same time that we were looking at it, um, a guy by the name of Dr. Chris Palmer did a study on headborne weight and its impacts on performance, specifically as it relates to shooting and target acquisition. And I'm paraphrasing, but the point of his study or the or the gist of his study showed that even a half pound of weight on the head reduced your target transition time or your reaction time to shoot a target by in some cases seconds wow which is life and death yeah and so that's the right correlation to get it done yeah man so that was one two was weight of helmet and nods on your noggin causes undue stress on your spine and particularly your neck well i (laughs) After my 2007 rotation, I was having all those neck problems and visiting the chiropractor and all that. I ended up almost being paralyzed. I was so in so much pain. I somehow got myself to work. I was eating pain pills at the time just to get by. And I went in and I was so bad off. They immediately sent me to the hospital. They did a a CAT scan. I can't have MRIs because I got shrapnel in my body, so they can't do an MRI. So they just did a CAT scan, and they could tell by my spacings between my vertebrae, C5, C6, that I had something big going on. So they immediately drove me to Walter Reed. I ended up being the second dude in the Army to have the particular neck procedure I had done. So I had total disc replacement, have two two, uh, stainless steel brackets screwed into my C5, C6 vertebrae. And uh, the first one was a guy that I knew, strangely. He had had that and a fusion done. I just had that done. And I ended up deploying 30 days after the surgery. But to circle back, I had neck surgery at 30 years old because of wearing a helmet and nods as much and as often as we did and impacts and jumping and helo stuff and all those things. Like, there's no other reason to explain it other than your body's not meant to have that weight. Yeah. 
So here I went in to this argument with USASOC and then subsequently with US SOCOM <clears throat> to argue for both the money and the concept of a national theater transition with, hey, I have had total disc replacement on my neck because of weight on my head. Hey, I, you know, I, yeah. gave, I gave these examples. I gave Chris Palmer's study as an example. There really wasn't anything that he could say. You're a living example for why we should have that. Yes. Um, yeah. So everybody just sort of nodded. And then luckily for me, there's some really good folks at, at the SOCOM Soldier Systems Program Office, PMSOF, SSES. They're actually up in Natick, Massachusetts. They're not down in Tampa. But there's some great folks up there. And one of the guys was the, the PM at the time was a former SEAL. Phenomenal dude that said, we're going to get this done. And, and we figured out how to do it. Um, the joke of the whole Ops Corps thing was that I was – a green guy, right? Um, at the time that I did that national theater transition, green was wearing the ops core, or I'm sorry, the cry airframe. Mm -hmm. That was the one that they were testing and evaluating. And blue was wearing the ops core. And I pushed for the ops core helmet. And I actually got challenged down at SOCOM. Like jokingly, a guy said to me, well, you're an army guy, your former units, not even wearing this helmet. Why are you fighting for the helmet that the Navy's wearing? And I had already talked to guys, and I said, well, because if you talk to the guys at the unit, they'll tell you that they ran all these tests, and I gave them all the examples. And the one reason they were going with the airframe was hopefully for a reduction in overpressure as it relates to blast because it was a two-piece helmet. And the testing showed that it didn't do anything. Yeah. And that – And when you wore it, because I wore the airframe for a period of time, it was like – 10 inches off the top of your head. Yeah. And so if you had anything mounted on top of your head it, and even in confined spaces, it was just massive. It's not that it was a bad helmet. It was just ugly. Yeah. It was just <laughs> ugly as crap. It was crazy. Egg, egghead. But anyway, I had some insider information. So I, I countered with that and lo and behold, we got it done. So we ended up fielding the Opscore helmet, which literally took a half pound off the existing helmet that you had. Coincidentally, it was a half pound, the exact amount that was quoted in the study. Wow. Um, but it took a half pound out of the head and, and, uh, or off your head and neck. And of course then they, and then we had lights and panel goggles and yeah, we, we mounted 10 more, 10 <laughs> yeah. times more stuff to it. Take a pocket off out of pocket. That's so awesome. Yeah. That's really cool that you guys did that. Is there any other significant, uh, like that, that stand out to you that, that you'd had change for the force, like any equipment or guns or something that's, you know, that yeah. was, well, I mean, there was, there was, um, there was a lot of things fielded. So PC level nine. So the combat uniform the guys wear right now, we yeah. did that. Um, clandestine body armor they didn't have prior we did that uh as heavy as it is yeah um <clears throat> we did uh, cry abs so we did brand new body armor vest yes i work for tier tactical now yeah um, but i did feel to cry vest to the yeah. force um the unit had the cry they're not they're running cry but the uh what was that chassis the cage the cry cage the one that you kind of had to put on sideways. Yeah, the original. I, I used that for a period of time, and, and it didn't last long. I just saw it go away, and then we went to something more streamlined. But Yeah, the cage was just heavy. ABS was a good vest. Um, it's still out there in service. It still is. I think this year they come up for a new recompete. I think they're about five years into that. Yeah. I mean, I've been gone for five years, and we fielded it, so yeah, it's getting close. Um, yeah, uh, weapons and optics side, a ton of additions happened in that stretch. Um Ammunition changes. Uh, we, I don't think we fielded new night vision, but we fielded new thermals. Um, on the TSE side, we fielded a bunch of TTL-related equipment, mm -hmm. tagging, tracking, locating stuff. Um, 
the TBS kits, so your recon and surveillance kits for mm-hmm. all your RNS teams and all the groups. We did all those. Um, and then there's some legacy stuff that only now I've been gone for five years. Kevin's whole tenure there, like they've just now started fielding GMV 1.1. That, that you guys worked on. We started that program. That program wow. took almost a decade to get across the finish line. Wow. And multiple staffs and multiple guys rotating through those positions. Um, yeah, that one, the precision sniper rifle, you know, the thing yeah. you guys talked about on podcast the other day, that stuff that Kevin got across the goal line, that stuff that started in 2010. Wow. Wow. Um, so yeah, people have no idea how challenging that world is. Um, it's way simpler being on the outside now than it was doing that. Um, and again, the most frustrating job I ever had, but at the same time it was cool because like, how do you argue with a guy or any of the guys that we had in the shop that had that level of combat experience and time down range? Like it was coming from a place of passion, man. Yeah. And they lost every argument they ever had with us because we would get so fired up about it. And I had this ragtag bunch of E8s cause yeah. they all were then that just cared about the guys. Um, and luckily we had some chain of command at the time that supported that stuff. So that's awesome, man. Um, so you guys, I mean, you're doing the G8 thing and you mentioned a couple of times that your personal life at this time was, was gone to shit. And you know, when you, I'm assuming at this level or at this time in your career, you're transitioning out. You're, you're stair-stepping out. You're thinking about the the long goals and objectives that you need to accomplish. And it's all going to come to an end at some point. And then you're thinking about outside life. How was your personal life during this time that you were in the USASOC uh, G8? And then were you prospecting for a future and transition? Or were you just going to go into a cold? I, I hadn't, the first couple of years, I didn't think about it. Um, the first couple of years, uh, I, I didn't know if I was going to go back to the unit or not. Um, I, so you were still contemplating going back. I was, um, I was at a loss. I mean, when you, when you lose what the only thing that you ever wanted to do, and when you associate everything about you and your life with what you do for a living and that stops, um, there was a couple years there of, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, the next surgery, consequently, um, I was severely hooked on pain medication post pre and post, um, pre. And then I had next surgery. I said, I deployed 30 days later. This is back in 07. Um, that was back when we still gave that stuff out like it was candy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not faulting anybody is that the system was the way that it was. Yeah. They were doing their best to look out after us, but we I didn't, didn't realize the nah, level man, of so, addiction. So I deployed 30 days post-surgery to the Horn of Africa, and they gave me this giant tackle box of four months worth of like perks and Flexero. And, yeah. That uh, was pain management. That was more. Just give you more. Right. And, you know, anybody that's ever dealt with prescription drugs, and obviously it's a huge problem in this country, but... Once you start doing that, it's like alcohol or drugs, like, or any form of drug, you sooner or later, one's not enough. Then, then two's not enough. Then you're taking it more times a day than you should. Then you're mixing it with alcohol. Then you're taking sleeping pill to go to sleep. And like I talked about the insomnia thing, like I, I sort of had all these things coming together. And so at the time I left the unit, um, I was kind of pretty bad in that cycle. Um, I was a high functioning 
alcoholic and, and high functioning addicted to prescription pain medication. Mm-hmm. Um, was did, it coping? Was it like a lot of it just trying to deaden the, the noise, the white noise that was in the back of your head? Yeah. When you were actively engaged and you were doing something, when I was on rotation. I was good. Yeah. It was, it was back home. It was anytime you had idle time, you, you know, the combination of negative thoughts and things that have happened, um, not feeling good about yourself, uh, you know, my, my own family drama and, you know, having two kids and I got to put, it's like going to work, man. I have to put the, the dad face on and, and be dad and be fun and be lovable and try, try to do those things. And then the moment that they're gone, you crater because you can. So you just fill that void with whatever you can. Um, and same thing with relationships during that time. I, I always call it getting off the roller coaster because all those years you're deploying extreme highs, low lows, and then you have to fill that void when you don't have that anymore. Um, you have no idea, or I didn't have any idea the impact on my psyche that I actually had to manifest things to make me feel alive. Um, I was so dead and shut off inside. So whether that was relationship drama or that was, you know, going out and, and, and drinking to make other stuff go away or that, whatever it was, it was like this life of extremes and, and you try to fill that void when you didn't have it anymore. So <clears throat> progress forward. So now I'm, I'm in the G8. I was fortunate, really fortunate to have some people around me that one had a lot of respect for what, I, what I had done and where I had been, even without me saying anything. Um, two, they were just really good dudes that had their own struggles and own trials. And I learned a lot about the fact that everybody's got a story and you should never judge somebody until you get to really know them. Yeah. Cause you'd be amazed in the soft community guys that you thought, Oh, he was whatever. And then you start talking and you're like, Holy crap, man, I didn't know that guy did that. Yeah. And it's things that impress you no matter who you are or what you've done. And, but I had a lot of those guys around me, um, at the time that allowed me to kind of work through that stuff. So, there were days when I would drive to work and pull in the parking lot and I couldn't physically bring myself to get out of the car and walk into the office. You know, it's a staff job. I liked parts of it, but let's face it, it, it wasn't the fastest paced thing. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of paperwork and emails and crap like that. And some days I just couldn't do it. And I would call a guy on the phone and go, Hey man, I, I can't do it. And, and all Mac would say to me was, okay, don't go home. Call me if you need anything. And the next day I would, you know, pull my britches up and I would show up and we'd be, he'd be like, yeah, all right, yep, I'm good. All right, I'm here if you need anything. And sometimes we would vent with one another. Sometimes we would talk about things, but he gave me that space and he didn't judge me for it. And he, and the guy watched me break down over silly things, Yeah, you know, just talking and knew that I had all this stuff in there, um, but kind of allowed me to go through that. So in that first couple of years stretch, um, I got off the pills. I realized I had a problem. Um, Weaned myself off. I was dating a person at the time that basically pointed out to me that I have these huge emotional swings and that the littlest fight turns into a big thing. And I had this rage and aggression. I got in some fights in that stretch over nothing, you know, where you just launch on somebody. And that's just not who I am. I've never been that guy. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was doing these things that I never do, making stupid mistakes. And she said, you need to get some help. And I was scared, like, because I, I like this person. I respected this person. Um, but she was the first to, to say it to your face. Yeah. 
intelligibly where you understood and you're like looking at yourself for the first time going, holy shit, maybe I am fucked up. Yep. Um, and that all kind of happened around the same time where I was really close to taking my own life. Um, the night that I got the closest, I had been really intoxicated the night before and the next day, um, you know, you, you have that bottomless pit feeling of what did I do? What didn't I do? What did I say? And, and no memory of the period. And I, I, you know, sitting on the end of the bed with a gun in your hand, I literally almost took my life and I didn't. Um, what's the reason? Why, why didn't you? Is there something specific? I didn't want to do that to my family. Hmm. Um, my kids mostly, um, something I say now, I don't, I don't know that I was cognizant of it at the time, but you don't care about any of that stuff that you did while you're doing it, but it means something to you when you leave. Hmm. And it means something to you because it means something to your family. And when you're dead and gone, that's part of who you are and your family should be able to appreciate that. And I think that not knowing what that was, but at the time I was like, man, I, I, I spent all these years doing this stuff that other people asked me to do. Now I feel like I don't matter and I'm irrelevant and know, maybe I'm just better off not here. And then I would think about my kids and, and I think that's what got me over it. But so the next day I decided I needed to talk to somebody. So the combination of her telling me that, and then that event, um, and I knew the use of sock psych at the time, like he was a, he was a former unit psych. It was a guy that I knew. So I found his number, you know, looking through the directory at Bragg and I called and I said, can I come see you? And he said, yeah, of course. So I, I went to see him. I don't know, the psych's office was like over by PSYOPs or whatever, mm-hmm. their own main post. And I walked in and um, so he he proceeded to, one, have some really good candid conversations with me, two, do some good tests and evaluation. Um, over a period of several weeks, um, he diagnosed me with both tra- traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress um, and actually documented my med records, which at the time didn't happen very often. Um, and he prescribed, uh, some medicine and I didn't want to take it. I fought him on it. I gave him my history and background with, with prescription pain meds and sleep meds and that vicious cycle and how awful it was. And I still wasn't sleeping and, you know, I was still drinking excessively, but I had gotten off the pills. And so I gave him that whole backstory. I fought him, I fought him, I fought him. He said, look, man, I'm going to put you on a really low dose. We're going to, we're going to see how this works out. He's like, it, it, think about it as, as like chemicals. Like you're, 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 you're chemically imbalanced right now. And all I'm going to do is give you a little bit of an edge to kind of balance that out. And we'll see what happens. And he's like, you can talk to me anytime. You can call me on my personal cell phone. Like he was super cool and I trusted him. So I went, got picked up the prescription, started taking the meds. Um, about four days a week went by and I was feeling pretty good. I was definitely way more even keel. I wasn't having the swings like I was. Um, I chilled out the drinking a little bit, one, because I felt better. Um, but two, because I was scared of what was going to happen if I drank, taking the stuff. Yeah. So even the, the girl I was dating at the time was like, wow, like I can see it in your face. Like you're, you're visibly different. So I was excited. I was like, wow, man, okay, this is step one. Now, now I need to like keep talking. I need to figure out what's going on with me. I was scared to death of traumatic brain injury stuff. And, and again, can't have an MRI. Like they didn't even have the ability to figure out all of the things wrong. I just had all these, these symptoms 
um, that I was living with. And so I take the meds for about 30 days and I go to the pharmacy and to pick up another 30 day prescription. Don't think anything of it. I go home, you know, taking my meds or whatever. And like, I don't know, a day and a half later, I, I don't even remember what happened, but something happened and I like lost it on the girl that I was dating at the time, like broke stuff in the ha- like lost my mind. Mm-hmm. And at some point in that whole engagement, she's like, I don't know what's like, she physically grabbed me and was like, I don't know what's going on with you. Everything was fine. Now over the, you're just flipping out. Like, what is like, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, I don't know. And I, I like broke down and I like just this pouring out of emotion. I, it didn't make any sense. Like everything felt so, so intense and extreme. And so in a panic, I call doc again and I go, doc, I don't know what's going on, man. I, I just, I'm losing my mind. And on a hunch, he goes, go get your pill bottle. And I said, okay. So I go get, it. he says, read me the milligrams on the label. And I read it to him. And he goes, holy shit. And I go, holy shit, what? And he goes, that's five times the dose that I prescribed you. And I go, what? He goes, the pharmacy made an error. Wow. And I was like, dude, what do I do now? And he goes, well, you come see me first. And so I, I do, I leave, I go see him. He meets me at his office. He explains to me that like what I need to do for the next like 48 hours tells me that I can't just stop taking it. So they have to reduce the milligrams and then wean me back off of this. So I have to be in contact with him all the time. I can't do anything. So that now there's a whole nother like three week cycle of coming back down off of this crazy emotional. So that thing wrote me off of medication forever. Like I'm done. You're not giving me a pill. Yeah to the point where it frustrates my wife now because yeah. I don't like going to the doctor. I don't like dealing with it because like, and, and doc was very candid with me after that incident. He's like, man, he's like a couple of things. Like one, you could have killed everybody in that 24 hours. Wow. Like that's how stuff like that happens. And he said two, if you were a civilian, you'd be a millionaire. And I was wow. like, what are you talking about? He's like, sued. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, if that happened in the civilian world, he was like, my God, the lawsuit. And I was like, yeah, but I'm in the army. Right. And he's like, exactly. Oh. And, you know, we laugh yeah, about yeah. it, but, but yeah. So, um, so that was kind of that two year stretch. Um, how, how important do you think empathy? Cause what I'm noticing and it's, you said it a few times is that for the first time, maybe in your life, or at least to where you were paying attention, you had somebody in your corner showing you empathy that would take you and say, hey, listen, this is going on, which is the language that we speak, which is clear, concise communication, no smoke and mirrors. And I've been in this circumstance myself where the people that were in my lives didn't understand what was happening because I didn't know. And it would frustrate them and they would leave me. And that felt like abandonment, resentment, all these different emotions. But it seemed like she was engaged because she's in it. She's committed, but she's also offering you the empathy. Was that important? It was. I mean, that stretch, I mean, it, it destroyed what little relationship we had, um, but we're still friends to this day. She continued to communicate with me. She continued to be there, at least in in voice and in spirit, um, 
when I needed her and I didn't really have anybody else to turn to. I had a handful of friends, but you know, very few people are as close to you as, as your significant other at that time. But, but yeah, so that was incredibly helpful. Um, like I said, the guys at work were incredibly helpful. Um, I didn't realize then I do now, but I was learning how to accept things then. Um, and I was learning how to be okay with me being flawed. Yeah. Um, and that I have things wrong and that that's okay. It's not a badge that I need to wear. It's not something that I need people to feel sorry for me for, but it's okay that I'm hurting and that I'm trying to get better. Um, at the same time, so my relationship didn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, she remained a friend and stuck around. At the same time, I was bringing some guys into the G8 um, that were at the same kind of point in their life. Um, CJ Dugan is a good one. CJ left the unit and came to me at the G8 and took over target engagement for me. And he... Same kind of thing. Getting are you seeing yourself in him? Totally, man. And are you are you steps ahead of him to be able to, to mentor him? I'm way ahead. And I and, and CJ, if you ask him to, today, like we would we had candid conversations. It wasn't deep, like outpouring of stuff, but I would say things in advance. I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, you're gonna feel like this. Yeah, this is gonna happen, and we would talk about that stuff. And and CJ, I'll say like that was I healed so much faster because I had a person that I knew and that I trusted and that I knew had been in my shoes. Mm. Um, and I think that helped me heal was being right next to somebody else in a similar situation and watching and hearing. And again, we like we weren't. It's not like we shared everything. But he knew whatever happened the day prior or however he felt when he got to work and the two of us were sitting right there next to each other, we both felt comfortable again, it, as little as that is. I had another former unit member that had got out that is a, is a big faith-based guy that was a civilian, was a contract civilian working in the command at the time in the G8. Um, his former A squadron guy, still to this day, good friend of mine, um, just a calm, level-headed dude. And like for me, like Lee was an outlet, I would just go talk to that dude about whatever. And because he was a guy that I had known walked in my shoes and CJ knew, you know, it was this little kind of internal community within this larger organization where it was like our little safe space, man, where we could be real. Is it, is it secretly like that's going to be everybody? I mean, I feel like it's weird because I see, I mean, even if these guys come out considering themselves unscathed, right? Which is, which is, hey, they didn't get reprimanded by an organization and they got out and they left on good terms in quotations. Is it really good terms? Because they're battling uh, the egos. They're battling the trauma. They're battling the transition. I feel like we're all in this secret club. It's like <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to say anything about it there's, openly. There's a... Um... My answer to your question is, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you can... I don't think mankind is wired to do what we did 
as long as we did it and come out unscathed. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there's some guys out there, they're stronger dudes than me, that's for sure, and I'm okay with that. Um, and, and good why, do, why do we associate that with strength, though? Is, you ever thought about that? Like, yeah, it's a good point. It's probably wrong choice words. But I mean, but I, even subconsciously, I, I think the same thing, right? Because I, I look at you and I go, I felt those same exact things. I look at guys like Satterley and I go, he felt that same exact thing. But we had the strongest mindsets in the world. And then what resonates with me is when you say, hey, through this experience, I came to terms with it. But it's almost like when they diagnose us, when a doctor goes, you actually have physiological issues that aren't your fault. You go, well, shit. Maybe it has nothing to do with mindset because I can go fly on the skid of a little bird and land on the X and I'm okay. But there's other factors here that are playing into it. Well, I think that that's one of the earliest steps is just going, being willing to go, maybe there is some stuff wrong. Mm -hmm. Like the little baby step that it is. Um, and then find absolutely a diagnosis helps. I think it's overdiagnosed and misdiagnosed and yeah. too broadly diagnosed. Yeah. Um, my VA appointments and VA psych evals were hilarious when, yeah. when I retired, like, like other people have talked ones. about, yeah. dude, like it's, they, they just scratched the surface and they're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Compared to what they normally yeah. see, and that you're like, that's just one rotation. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, but understanding that, learning that, educating yourself about it, that all, all that stuff helps. Um, but honestly, man, like, there's a there's a quote from uh, Ernest Hemingway, I think, and he said, and I'm assuming this was post. I think Ernest Hemingway actually fought in World War One, um, so this is post World War One. He said, "There's no hunting like the hunting of men." Those that have hunted our men long enough and liked it, nothing else will be the same thereafter or mm-hmm. something I'm, yeah. you know, close to that. Yeah. I don't know that you can do that for that length of time over and over and over again and come out the same person that went in. Mm. Um, and I think that's okay. Like, there's a few of us in the world, I believe that are capable of doing it in the beginning um, over and over and over and over and over. There's thousands of guys and gals that we ask to do it that probably aren't cut out for it mm-hmm. year after year after, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it's part of the journey. I mean, it's I, part I, of the journey. I, I, I think about, you know, I, I always think about in the context of, you know, even the gladiators where you're fighting for your freedom and, the only thing you want to do when you get back is you realize that maybe you just want to go back to farming. You know, you just want to go back to your life, to a life that you you might have had or that you always dreamed of having because it eventually it's going to end. Whether it's forced modernization uh, because you're you're put in that position or you're transitioning out and you go into CDD, it's going to end. Yep. And I see dudes like some of the greatest dudes I've ever known in the military chasing the rainbow. Like I chased it with ground branch. I chased it with uh, GRS. I thought there was something there and it's not there. Yeah. And then, and then realizing like, Hey, you can't just live in this fantasy world of connexes, alcohol and women and, and operations. Yep. You have to eventually come home and set anchor and live a actual life. And that was the hardest thing for me. Like how, What's the start point for fucking living life? What what was the start point for you when you decided it it's over? 
And now I have to do something that I, where I have to rediscover my passions. Uh, meeting my wife. Um, I was, you know, like I said, the first couple of years went by um, of really bad times. And now I'm in 2012 time frame. And work, I was doing work with a company um, that was doing communications headsets for the command. And I knew the guy that ran the company pretty well. He was a former Israeli soft guy, believe it or not. And, and we got to be friends. We had some mutual connection. I was never a guy to talk about what I've done, but I'd been around him enough that at some point it had come up like he had put two and two together and figured out that I was a, a SMU guy. And, and then it just kind of went from there and, um, she, and she worked for him. So, um, we got to know each other sort of via that route. Um, and she took an interest. She laughed at a joke that probably wasn't funny. And I was, <laughs> and I, and I caught it and was like, hey, maybe she's interested. Nice. And she, <clears throat> was a uh, just an amazingly good person, um, family, people, charity, just a good listener, uh, a good sport, a good teammate, um, and our relationship went pretty quick. Um, and I was, it was perfect timing in that I was so ready to have someone next to me that I could go bleh. Hmm. Like, Cause you're carrying all that back. Cause I'm carrying it. And, and then one thing led to another and like something would happen or I would, I'd have some emotional outbreak or some issue or, and because I cared about her and I really wanted this to work, even though I was in really rough shape. I felt like the only way I'm going to keep this girl around is if I just explain things to her as best I can. And she knew nothing about my previous life. Like n n absolutely no idea, man. Like still to this day, we'll be someplace and... She'll probably listen to this podcast and she, be like, yeah. what in the fuck? And we'll have a conversation <laughs> and she'll be like, I've never heard that. Because <laughs> I don't... I, it's not until really recent years that yeah. I've ever talked about that stuff. It's one of the... I take pride in that now in my job. I love interacting with end users and they have no idea who you are. I'm just a dude that works for a kit company. And then you build a relationship through because we have good kit and yeah. we do things that they ask and we take good care of the customer. And then a year later, you know, they come up to visit us in Phoenix and I actually have a few things in my office. There's nothing in my house, but I, because it's relevant, I have some things in my office Yeah, and, and they come up there and then they see it and they realize like, Oh, Oh, you, yeah, you kind of done a lot. And, it, and, it, and that's, <laughs> that is the greatest moment ever. That's you, so awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because then they, they just respect you even more. Yeah. Like, yeah. because you didn't, Tell them you know yeah. better. You're not wearing that identity. No, it doesn't you, define you. You listen you know? to them and you let you let what they wanted develop their stuff. Yeah. And, and so I love that. But anyway, kind of all that stuff was happening at the same time. And she was receptive and she listened um, and she heard me. And she like really looked at me as a person. Um, and she loved me for who I was right then and there with all that pain and weakness and strength and, you know, all the good and all the bad, every little bit of that, that I gave to her, she took it and she was good with it. Um, 
<clears throat> and that having someone be that receptive to all those things that knows nothing about any of it, that wasn't with you when you went through that trauma, that didn't even know any of the people that you've talked about, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that to me was incredible and instrumental in my healing. So then it made me want to like, listen to her, yeah. like be like, a better person. Yeah. Like, yeah. okay. Like, what should we do next? You know, like, all right, you're my teammate in this. What do we do next? And, you know, like living healthy was part of it. So like changing your cycle, like, all right, let's go to the gym. Well, you know, when you're not deploying down range, when fitness isn't a part of your job anymore. Yeah. And that part of survival. It's hard, uh, man. It is. <laughs> it's it hard. Is. It's hard. And, and I had to relearn that. And I relearned that through her, you know, doing things in the outdoors. Like we started backpacking together. I started introducing her to some of that. And that was therapeutic for me because I was getting, getting to teach her these things and share these things that I enjoy with her. And she was falling in love with it, which I thought was the coolest thing. And then, you know, I'm the old broke lazy one. And she'd be like, Hey, let's go do this. And I love that. Like having somebody kick me in the butt and go, yeah, Hey, let's, and it was stuff I had enjoyed. She knew if she'd get me out there, I'd be fine. Five minutes later. I just, it's just getting me over that first hump. Um, and she was massively huge in my recovery. Um, her family is amazing. <clears throat> Big family. Um, still to this day doesn't know anything about my background. I won't tell them about the podcast because it probably blow their mind if they listened to all this stuff, but they, uh, took me in and loved me. Like, you know, we're just good people to me. Uh, and that helped. Um, we lost her mother, uh, crazily to a, to a weird cancer. And, me actually being able to be there for her um, when, you know, you're not supposed to lose your mom at 56 years old or whatever. Yeah. Um, but being able to be the strong one again and and be there for her. And at one point through that process, her, her and her sisters were like, how are you so solid through all this? And I said, because I've experienced a lot of loss. Mm. And... I was able to remove myself from it as much as I loved her mother and as sad as I was too, I knew they needed somebody to be the strength in the, the strength yeah. in it. And, and that was huge for me in accepting all of that stuff too. Um, are you relearning how to just live? It sounds like, I mean, if it's, it's odd to say, but civilians who just live life, I see them and I'm like, you're just living it and you don't have to try. But sometimes when I'm living and all this transitioning, I was doing it from breath to breath, you know, moment to moment and then going, is this good? This is great. Why am I experiencing this? I want to get the fuck out of here. Like I want this, this shit's about to burn down tomorrow. Like I don't know. And there's so, so much insecurity in it. Do you still feel that? Or do you, have you built that solid foundation no, I I think it's I think it takes constant work. Yeah. Um I, my wife and I were just talking about that this morning. I, I, I still have bouts with depression. I still have but but the difference now is I know the signs, I know what it feels like. Mm. I know what's going on in, in me. Um, because I've accepted it and I've learned about it and I've educated myself on it and I've listened to other people talk about it and I've helped other people with it. Now I see it and I know some of my triggers, I know how to get myself out of it. Like, um, the joke of the hiking thing, 
like that for me, that is my, that's my Zen garden, man. That's my, that's my flow state. So when I need to reset for me, it's as simple as, Hey, let's go for a walk. Like let's, let's plan something easy and go for a walk. And, and I'm fortunate enough to have people around me that get that and dig that and are cool with that. And so I work really hard, but at the same time, I do a lot of self-care, man. I, I, I take, I make sure that I live life. I remind myself weekly, at least of how lucky I am to still be here. And, and I think it's okay. It's okay to reflect on all the times that I almost wasn't here. Yeah. Um, and the guys that aren't here. Um, and, and I just remind myself constantly that, Hey man, this, this life is great. Like live it. You don't know when you're not going to anymore. So yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's, you always have to do that. Um, and then I think new challenges, man. I think we as people want to learn. And when you sit stagnant and you're not challenging your mind, challenging your body, you're not doing something that the body starts to die. Mm. And you got to remind yourself of that. Like, is, is your job with, because, you know, getting into your job with Tier Tactical, I feel, you know, after interviewing Jason and understand Tier Tactical as a company and him as a person, and then your position in the company, that you're given the latitude to do things that your creative mind or your just soul needs to do. So if you piece it together, so I met Jason in 2010. Um, Jason Beck owns Tier Tactical. He owned Diamondback Tactical prior, had, a, had like a two-year hiatus. Sold Diamondback, started Tier. Uh, I met him in 2010 through a mutual friend. A guy told me, hey, you should go meet this guy. He's out at the range. He's got a sewing trailer. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, man, he's got a sewing trailer, and he's building kit on the ground for the guys to go out on the range right then and there, use it, come back, and if they want changes, he's changing it. I'm like, that's pretty cool. He's like, yeah. He's like, you guys have a lot in common. He's a super passionate dude, and I always was. I can get fired up. Not in a bad way, but I, I get excited yeah. about things, and... I get really passionate about stuff easily. And uh, so anyway, so I go out to Range 37, sniper comps going on. I go meet this guy. And, you know, I don't, I'd heard his background. You know, he taught with the Gracie Academy for a bunch of years, you know, big jiu-jitsu guy. Um, and it, he's like in this little tent or whatever in the sew trailers next to it. And I go in and introduce myself. He's like, oh, yeah, he knew I was coming. So, you know, we make some small talk or whatever. And like, a minute and a half into the small talk because I had like 35 minutes out there and there was a bunch of vendors at the time and I wanted to see some other stuff too and talk to some other people. And then I knew people out there, so I wanted to say hi. So I didn't have a whole lot of time. So I go, hey man, so what makes you any different than any other kit company? And he's like, like his face kind of sunk. And then he looked at me and went, well, I'll tell you what. And he proceeded to go on and on and on about tear. And it wasn't just the kit. It wasn't just my kit's great. It was why he started tier. Um, and the things that he said to me resonated with me, like, uh, and I know so much more now, so I'm paraphrasing and I don't remember exact details of what he said, but the gist of the conversation was that, Hey man, I learned a bunch of lessons doing this the first time. I'm a self-made man. I'm self-made business owner, entrepreneur. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I did a lot of dumb things. I figured out how I don't want to do it. I sold that. I blew all that money. Um, and I started another one 
because I know I can be the best at it and I want to do it my way. And I want to stay small and agile and receptive to the force. I want to cater to, to the soft community globally and, and to high-end tactical units like SWAT teams and whatnot. And that's all I want to be. He's like, I want to continuously evolve. I want to innovate and do new stuff. I want to push the industry. And he said a bunch of stuff in a really short period of time that I was like, that's that dude's pretty cool. Like, I get it. Um, and again, now I know, you know, his jujitsu background and all that time at the grace. Yeah. His intensity comes from a lot of different places that you don't see in a normal business owner. Like dude used to fight people for a living. Like that's a little different mindset than yeah. your average, like small business owner. And we don't typically walk away from vendors going, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I did, he thought I hated his guts. Yeah. Um, but so he and I continued to develop our relationship in the early stages. You know, he did some kit for the command, a couple different projects. I helped him on some things. He helped me on some things. Um, and our relationship kind of grew. And I liked him, like, as a person. Um, so, like, we would be at something like Sofic down in Tampa or whatever, some event where there's a bunch of industry folks and, and all of us would always go uh, for work. And I would meet him for dinner or whatever. And he didn't drink. And, you know, I... He had a reason or a backstory why he didn't drink, but he hadn't drank in 30 plus years. And I thought that was cool. And at the same time, I was a big drinker, um, especially then. Mm -hmm. And I would drag him out with me. And like, he's not that, he's not a partier. Like, that's just not him. He's a super intense guy. But he would go along and, and just be and drive me home and... Like it was cool. And at somewhere in that phase of our relationship, he said to me, he's like, man, I've never met anybody that can be so on. He's like, when your work, your business, he's like, you sound like, like the most knowledgeable dude in the room all the time. He's like, and then, you know, at 1030 at night, when we're on our third bar, <laughs> he goes, I look at you and I don't even know who you are. <laughs> And he's like, but, but it's kind of funny, but he, the, I'm more, I'm making light of it now, yeah. but he saw through that. Um, he saw through what I was doing to myself, um, and, and the negative and realized that, Hey man, there's a, there's a decent dude in there with a good head on his shoulders and I'm going to stick around to see how this comes out. And, wow. uh, so, so it's a long vetting process. It was, man. Yeah. So we, so we, you know, I introduced him to guys that he hired, you know, before I left the service. And then I really thought I was going to end up in, in, uh, in the outdoor clothing industry. Um, I did a lot of work on the early days, testing and evaluating, you know, the Patagonia system before it was fielded to soft and then eventually turned into the whole army system. Yeah. Um, Great you know, kit, by the way. That's amazing. It was great yeah. stuff, and, and I loved it. I was an outdoor guy. Like I was like, man, you know, my, my dream job post-service, since I'm out here doing this combat development stuff now, would be like something in the outdoor space like that. Um, guns, yeah, whatever, man. I had guns my whole life. It's not that I don't like them. I just, I'm not a gun guy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch in my house, but <laughs> like yeah. anybody, but yeah. but it just didn't really interest me. Um same, you know, a lot of the tech stuff, I, you know, I wasn't that great at it. Um, but, I, but like kit and clothes and stuff, like I used to build my own kit when I was in squadron, you know, anytime you got something new, you needed to change something. I breached for so long and we were always using different stuff and building new charges. And so I was always modifying stuff. So I was very familiar with that. 
Um, the climbing days, we used to build ladders and we kind of came up with that whole genre of stuff for urban assault climbing back then. And we were building it all in house then. And, and I liked that part of it. I liked identifying a problem, a capability gap, and then building a solution to fit it. I enjoyed that, but I thought I was going to end up in clothing and, and outdoors. And, uh, about a year before I retired, um, Jason started working on me and I was like, I don't know, man, you know, I, I might go do this. I might go do that. And he, he was cool. He was like, yeah, man, those, those would both be super cool. That's like right up your alley. You're super into that. And he's like, but I'd really like to have you come work for me. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, cause cause a really good friend of mine had done that. Yeah. Um, had retired and went to work for, for cry precision and was there for a really long time and instrumental in their success. And, and, and it's a guy that I know and respect and, and love. And, uh, and I didn't want to be like a one-off, you know, even yeah. though I had this great example, I didn't want to be a one-off. So there's a little bit of a stigma there for me. Um, but then at the same time, I'd been through other stuff where I went through, we had plate failures when I was at SOCOM or when I was in the G8 and we had to go through a whole thing of, you got dudes down range with bad plates because a vendor screwed up and Jason was a body armor guy. Cry wasn't, they were, they were nylon, you know, yeah. Jason's really tears, really the only high end tactical nylon company that builds its own armor. Um, and that was appealing. So I was in this mixed period of emotion and, and, um, yeah. And then the clothing thing kind of took a different turn. They made a couple of companies, made some different business decisions that kind of painted a picture for me that, yeah, I probably don't have a permanent home in that world. They're hiring guys as contractors and stuff like that. And, and here I got Jason asking me to, to come design kit, which is pretty cool. And so now I'm about three months out. I'm committed to Jason. Um, and he has a conversation about opening a facility in Canada. And he's like, would you be interested in running the Canadian facility? And you can run clothing and backpacks out of the Canadian facility. And we'll do nylon and body armor out of Arizona. And then we'll collaborate, you know, whatever. And I was like, yeah, where in Canada? He's like, Vancouver. I was like, oh, man, that'd be great. Like Pacific Northwest. I can ski in the winter. It sounds I, amazing. No, it would have been incredible. Yeah. So, so we flew up to Vancouver. I'm, I'm like on terminal leave or whatever. Mm-hmm. We flew up to Vancouver and uh, like recon places and all that. Came home. I was super excited. Robin has since moved down to North Carolina with me. So she's left her company in DC. She's moved down with me. We, we agreed we both weren't going to transition at the same time. She wanted to leave her job anyway. Yeah. So she's not working. She's just there with me. I come home. I convince her like to move to the Pacific Northwest. Now this is a person that is from Maryland, big family on a farm in Maryland, not only did I ask her to leave her career, our country, but now I ask her to leave her family, and now I'm asking her to move as far as humanly possible in the United States from there. Yeah, um, you know, and so she she bought into it and was like, "Yeah, like if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it with you." And nice, like we'll 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 make it work if you think this is the right thing. And she was super supportive. And right about the time that we made that decision, Jason calls me and he's like, "Hey." Uh, the Canadian government really wants us to put a facility in Ottawa, Canada. And I said, 
I'm not moving to Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> That's the middle of nowhere. Right? Holy yeah. crap, dude. Yeah. It's like the Kansas of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I'm like, I'm not doing that. He's like, you know, D and D headquarters is there. Kansas headquarters is there. And, and like tier holds the Kansas contract. And yeah. we've been their body armor supplier for a bunch of years. And anyway, so he's like, well, you know, I, I, um, that's cool. I figured you'd say that. And he's like, I've been thinking about it. And I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, man, I really need a number two. And I was like, what? Like it didn't even register mm. really what he was asking me. And and then he proceeded to explain it and didn't use a ton of words. He basically said, I, I need somebody that I know is going to be honest and truthful with me. I know that's going to watch my back. I know that what I see is what I get. Like I, I need somebody that I can count on that I can trust mm. and I trust you. And he's like, what do you think about moving to Phoenix? And just step in as my number two. And it didn't take me long. I, I like, it was a pretty quick process decision, but I was like, yeah, let me get back to you. And I talked to Robin. So now I've convinced her to do all that <laughs> stuff. And I go, hey, how about the desert Southwest? <laughs> And we laugh about yeah. it today. And she's like, oh, my God, no, that sounds so awful. The desert is brown and nasty uh, and dry. Little did we know we would both love it as much as we do yeah. in the desert. But but anyway, so she she says yes. And so I called Jason back and said, yeah, man, I, I think I can do that. And um, so I retired in 15, uh, took, the, took the time off to go hike John Muir and kind of reconnect and clean break, make that transition. Um, by 15, I was doing way 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 better um our life was good uh living healthy eating healthy working out john muir reset my sleep schedule so as soon as we got back from john muir before i went into work robin goes hey tomorrow we getting up at five and i said what and she's like we getting up at five and i was like uh, why? And she's like, because you wake up at the crack of dawn now and you've been sleeping. Let's go to the gym at five instead of in the evening. And I was like, Ugh. all right. <laughs> so she's like the team star. She was, yeah. man. So we went to the gym and I have not stopped that routine since then. Wow. We get up every day at 450. I go to the gym almost seven days a week, unless I'm traveling or doing other stuff. Yeah. Um, I come home, I drink a shake with a bunch of crap in it. And then I take my breakfast to work with me, work out. Like, I mean, literally like that regimen. Has that helped? That routine oh, helped? Yeah. so much, man. Like mm-hmm. I, as I got fitter and healthier, um, you know, I had, I had stem cell therapy last year and some other stuff, but it's like every year there's some other little nugget. There's some other little thing that I get just that much better. And like I was saying earlier, I still got to keep working at it. Um, but, but yeah, it gets better and better and better. So, but I ended up out here, um, started with tier, you know, since then it's been amazing. Like our, our growth has been incredible. The people that work for the company are incredible. Um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to continue to kind of add the right pieces over the last few years. Um, and business has gone really, really well. The philosophy we've gotten larger, but the philosophies are still the same. It's, you know, build good high end quality kit. That's going to last. It's bomb proof, be reactive, innovate or die, you know, continue to feed the industry and push the industry. Um, yeah, man, it's a solid, solid, solid team. And, 
And my relationship with him has been so instrumental in my healing as well. Like we're very different people, man. We can, we can love like brothers or we can fight like brothers. Yeah. Um, and, and not in a bad way. It's me and him, you know, uh, at the end of the day, my job is to, to keep him safe. Um, and I think my journey with tear in particular, as it relates to the earlier conversation was also huge in understanding myself better. Um, a couple of the big lessons learned that I had in the last few years is, you know, the stuff that made you great at what you did in the military is the same stuff that will make you great at what you do next. Mm. And, you know, guys forget, particularly soft guys, like you are unique, man. There's the stuff that makes up who you are that truly makes you good at that is unique and special to you. And it has nothing to do with the job that you're doing. Like Mm. the job that you're doing is just skills that you acquired based on your personal attributes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't define you. Um, And if you take you and apply it to something else, you can be that good at that too. Um, So I kind of had that realization in the last few years. Uh, And that was from going in and going, man, how am I going to be a chief operating officer of this company? I don't know anything about manufacturing. I mean, I know how a sewing machine works and I can use a Bartek machine and whatever, but I don't know anything about this. And, you know, you fast forward a couple years into that and I'm on a phone call with a buddy that I hadn't seen in years that I was in the 82nd with and he was an officer and he retired and and I was doing something and wanted to start his own company, wanted to manufacture some stuff. And he called me. He's like, I know you guys build this stuff. You know, how does this work? How does that work? And I like verbal vomited, like manufacturing 101 at this dude for like 35 minutes. And he didn't say anything. And finally I go, Brian, are you there? And he goes, yeah. And I go, does all that make sense? And he goes, holy crap, dude. Like, did you go to school for all that? (laughs) And I was like, what? And he's like, I don't even know who you are, man. He's like, all that stuff you just said. He's like, I hadn't thought about any of that. He's like, where did you get all that? And I realized I was fortunate enough to be put in a situation where I get to shadow a person every day and I'm involved in every aspect of the business and, and, you know, every decision that we make and, you know, every choice that he has, I have an influence in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't mean that we're always going to agree, but that that environment allowing someone allowing you to be in that space and trusting you to be in that space is the greatest learning experience of your life. Like you, I'm a sponge, man. I I took in so much more information than I thought I did where now I like to think, and I hope he would say the same thing. You know, we're kind of interchangeable pieces, which whether he's there, I'm there, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, same thing if he's traveling or if I'm traveling, you know, he's got a bunch of hunting trips this year, which is super cool because he never takes time off because he's wired like the rest of us. Yeah. Like grind, grind, grind. Yeah. That's all he knows. But he's finally taken a little personal time to spend some time with his family and do some stuff that he enjoys doing that isn't work. Um, and I'm privileged and honored that he respects me enough and trusts me enough and has enough faith in my intelligence that he's comfortable doing that stuff now. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, man, I think that stuff has been a huge part of my healing between my wife, the transition, a little bit of self-awareness, some good friends and, and a business opportunity that I would have never seen 
you know, 10 years ago, or even imagine that now I absolutely love. Any uh, new goals and objectives for the, the near near future for you? I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on with Tier Tactical. You got the uh, hundred miler. Or did you are you guys doing that? We are. Yeah, actually, in I don't know four weeks, the end of February, um, Robin and I are flying down to Mexico. You're gonna say the same thing everyone says to climb a mountain, eighteen five. Um, so Pico de Orizaba is the tallest volcano in North America. It's wow. the third highest peak in North America. So you got Denali, whatever the name of the one in Canada is, and then this. Yeah. It's about two hours north of Mexico Actual City. Actual climb, not a hype climb, but it's you're scaling. It's, it's some alpine mountaineering, but yeah. it's, on, it's on the easier scale. Yeah. Um, Robin's done thousands of miles hiking on some super sketch terrain and some super sketchy conditions, but um, she's never done a big like mountaineering trip. Um, so this will be her first one. Uh, and definitely the highest peak she's ever been on. Um, so yeah, we're going to go down there and do that. And then, uh, this summer, the next long one for us is we're going to do the hot route in, um, H A U T E hot route, which starts in, uh, I don't know how you say it, Chamonix, France, mm-hmm. uh, and through the Alps and ends in, uh, Zermatt, Switzerland. It's like a hundred and something miles, but it's kind of a more remote section of the Alps. So a lot of people go out and do the, the Tour de Mont Blanc, um, super touristy, we like to find the stuff that's off kind of, grid. Yeah, at least a little more so. Yeah. Um, so that's our next our big hike for the year. How are? Is there any way? Do you, are you a big social media guy? Do you, can people see what you're what's going on in your life? Or I know Tier Tactical obviously has the their social media stuff. I think all of us are getting a little better at this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not a big social media guy. I just recently this year, uh, my Facebook isn't open. Um, but my Insta is it's vansanttiertactical.com or at Instagram. Yeah. So my last name, Tier Tactical yeah. at Insta. Um, it's open. I just mostly on Insta, I just share some of our journey picks, man. Like we share hikes and we share that stuff. I don't know. I'll tell you where it comes from is because it's been so healing for me. Um, at some point down the road, uh, we're going to do something with that. I'm not, I'm not sure what that looks like yet. Um, but I think there's an opportunity there for other people to find some healing in that space. I was thinking about that when you said it and you said it a couple of times and I'm like, man, how awesome would that be to do something like a nonprofit or for-profit that's just brings people in the fold and shows them how healing that could be. We talk about it all the time. My wife and I, even Jason and I have talked about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, like I said, I don't know what form that will take, but you know, people always say, Oh man, you guys are, you're all over the place and you know, it looks great. And I know there's probably a percentage of the people that look at your Instagram photos and go, Oh, we just see the rosy side. And honestly, man, I'm just that lucky right now. Like, yeah. That's just my life. Like I get to travel the world for work and then I tie personal stuff on the backside of that to kind of keep that work-life balance. And I'm lucky enough to have people around me that let me do that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just our life. Like, um, So I, I started sharing that. I opened that up. Um, so if there's people that, uh, and mainly it's because I did one of these calls or podcast before it's been a couple years um and i did it about uh transition and said hey you know 
people want to ask questions, like by all means, fire away. Like oh, I might DM not, you. I might not answer you immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um. But but I will get back to you if I can. If you if you're interested or you want to know or you just want somebody to talk to, um, I get it. So yeah, we'll put that in the in the the show notes too. And I and I think, you know, people listening to this podcast are there. You're gonna find a lot of people who share similar experiences and they just can relate to it. You know, they're like, that's what I found in all these things that we talk about openly, even though most people don't have special operations backgrounds, they go through some level of trauma and transition and then try to pick up the pieces. And it's this story, which is your story, which is uh, uh, the typical story in special operations is the far fringe of that. But anything in between could fit that mold and people resonate with that. I mean, people look at that example and go, man, well, if Chris, you know, one of the most elite dudes on the planet who has this myriad of experiences can claw his way out of a bad circumstance with the support that he had, maybe I could do the same. And I think that's hugely important, man. I, I want to thank you, Chris, for uh, sharing your experiences, man. It's been a few hours, I think, we've been on the podcast, and it, but it doesn't seem that way because I'm just so tuned into it. Like I, your face is burned in my head now because I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will say this: like I'm a little starstruck. I'm not usually starstruck, but I, the reason that was so important to me, seeing and reading that when so many people bypassed that, right? Um, a lot of people in our community would look at that and go, oh, "Whatever, dude. That's whatever. It's that's that stuff I'm interested in because some guys are good with carrying a ladder for 20 years and that's just their mo." But I've always been been interested in uh, not only singleton operations, but the ability to uh, really live the life of an operator and do things where you're dependent on to make decisions in the field where you're in, you're a true singleton. And you know, man, the the historical reference of that story, the fact that you know, full spectrum, you from the very beginning as you know, an E1 all the way to the the point in which you're even living now, making a difference. I don't think of uh, uh, a better person and a, a broader experience I would want to see in somebody developing, you know, testing and evaluating and research and developing the best equipment in the world for the most elite operators in the world. That's significant, man. And that's, I think about full, full spectrum too and, you know, reciprocating back to the community it's like you did it, you lived it. Now it's time to give back, and that's what you're doing. Um, that's and that's exactly how I feel. Like, yeah. like I, that's. Jason, and I laugh about this all the time. When you're passionate about what you do, and when you care about what you're doing in our world, it just makes money. Like, it does well because you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. It's not about growth and success. It's about building good kit for the guys, keeping them safe downrange. Um, and, and giving back to the community. That's, that's exactly how I feel. Not all the time. Cause sometimes things have set, you yeah, know, yeah. but, but that, that side of it too, being able to, I'm removed on the one sense, but I still get to touch and impact the community, um, is huge. Like that's probably one of the most rewarding things. And it gets better every year, like every year that I get better and my peer group 
heals and guys move on and do other things like that part is really fun now. And I hope that it continues to do that. I hope the community continues to tighten up because there's not that many of us out there, brother. Yeah. And you know, we got to look out for one another. Absolutely. What an amazing experience. What an amazing story. Chris Van Zandt, um, a tier tactical. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me.